funny how the colors of the real world only seem really real when you vidy them on the podcast. God damn it. It's fine. You did a great job. I tried. Ooh. He's got such a... Well, he's doing a Yorkshire accent, and you were doing like a Yorkshireman, but like like a farmer Yorkshire. You were, you were getting more farmer. I'm so lost already. What, I know. What I also like mean? hiccuped in the middle of it. I'm sick. I need a new cough drop. But part of it is also... I understand the accent he's doing, but like Malcolm McDowell has an a, an incredibly unique voice. He is a, a there's a, a musicality a to his voice. Yes. yes, that is very hard to replicate, and it's funny. Look, we're going to talk about McDowell a lot. Mm. You, don't, you don't want to? I think there's a lot to talk. He's like about. the seventh most important thing in the movie. I just think we maybe never talked about him on the podcast before, and he's such an interesting, bizarre. Movie star, right? But we can only talk to him up into this movie. No, we, can we can only do, talk. No, about we him can up do whatever we want. I'm saying his subsequent career is not under discussion as of 1971. We can talk about whatever we want. There are no rules like you that on this. Well, if, if there's no, there, we can talk about whatever we want. But you're pretending that you only have four hours until we have to leave, which it means you have three to make hours. Means you have to make some diligent cuts on what we're this discussing. This podcast is a Warren Beatty production, as far as I'm concerned. Rules don't apply. Now, David has. Continually tried to stress a hard out. Yeah. Which three hours which, from now. Which he seems to do with more severity when this guest is on the show. Mm. Look, mm. he comes in. We A guest loaded to bear with a printed... Uh, uh, it's not, is it printed? No. Or is it handwritten? This? The, the shirt? Or the... No, the, 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 the shirt's very oh, nice. This is no. printed. This, yeah. is seven, oh, printed. this is seven single space printed pages. Right. And not a big font I, I'm seeing from here. It's a, it's a I, small, I just small feel like site. every time there's and an art episode... Font. Alex comes with printed documents in hand, and David comes with a hard out in hand. Two incompatible things. Yeah. I mean, the, we'll talk about this actor, Mr. Malcolm McDowell, of course. I will say, you say, I mean, I think I agree with that. Like, he's not really, he didn't really have a long movie star career. This is what I think is fascinating about him, is that he has this kind of great, like, young, angry man career, Right where he becomes, like, sort of a cultural avatar. Briefly, Across, like, the yeah, Lindsay yeah, Anderson yeah. movies in this, right? Yeah. But, like, especially you look at If, A Lucky Man, and this. But that's all 67 to 73, right? Absolutely. Is, is If 67, or did I miss that? By if is 68. 68. To me, he almost seems like the definition of a guy where you're just like, well, his career is going to be totally locked to this period. When someone's this tapped into the youth culture and a certain energy and whatever... It's like, is he Bud Court? Is he, like, not going to be able to age? And then there's sort of, like, weird period. But he does have this odd career where it's like, A, he's got, like, the Eric Roberts thing where you look at his IMDb and you're like, this guy does 18 movies a year. He does work a lot. He'll do anything. He also right? does a ton of television. Yes. So much TV. And he'll do anything. But you're like, he has transitioned pretty well into being, like, elder statesman. Both in terms of like villain, I say this with a lot of respect for Malcolm McDowell, who I do like a lot as an yeah. actor, even as yes. current Malcolm. Yeah, but he's like, he's like the 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 eighth elder statesman you call. You've you've I'm gotten you've gotten some hangups. I'm when not you're like Malcolm, and he's like, oh, I'll do it. I'm not disagreeing, yeah. and he does enough bullshit that he'll like never have like Brian Cox gravitas. To the him. villain in season that Cox is above him, and I would say Cox especially pre-succession was not yes. that high on yes. that list. Would you agree? They must have called Malcolm for X2. They maybe did they call or were they like fucking Cox fucking turns us down 
they're looking at the pinboard. They're like, Malcolm McDowell, I guess? They're like, neck you know, and neck. That's I the mean, question. I yeah he because Cox is a little more sprightly. What was like was it Gangster Number One? What was like the one? Paul Bettany plays young him. The one huge like old man McDowell part that people were like, "It's Gangster Number One," and that movie was very niche. But the I mean yeah I'm surprised we've even all heard of it because I feel like that movie didn't very come out well. Huge Paul McGuigan. Yeah, it's a Paul McGuigan movie. I I sat next to Paul McGuigan in a dinner once for three hours and had a wonderful conversation with him. Hey, well that's a humble brag. Well, speaking of three hours. Uh, I I will say that the the, the McDowell thing <laughs> yeah. just to because I was all keep trying to do bring it back to to Kubrick for for this he's just like the perfect Kubrick lead because he's one of many people that had a tremendously huge career after the Kubrick movie they were in and this would still be the first thing on there a hundred percent it's certainly yeah. Pure Delia, the, yeah. Ryan O'Neill I would say almost undeniably uh, Modine and D'Onofrio I feel like a lot of people in these movies. D'Onofrio? It's kind of their defining role. I think that D'Onofrio will get the wide-spanning character actor of note. But maybe no I guess question. Full Metal that Jacket, Jacket is the first number one. It is kind of his defining performance, and Modine has certainly like made so much of his life around that movie. Modine, the experience no of making question. that movie. There's no question, right? And then the only th- McDowell. There's no question. Obviously, it's Which just even... it's true of more Kubrick Boring. leads yeah, so than it's not. I and I feel like that's always one of the interesting things about his body of work and his actors is oftentimes it's their signature role. There was a 40th uh, anniversary look back thing on the Blu-ray or maybe it was 50th, whatever it was, but it was Malcolm McDowell in some office with a bunch of different documents that the Warner Brothers archives had pulled up, like going through memory lane about the movie. And he just flatly says like, you're an actor, you only get to be in like one movie this great if you're lucky. I mean, he's by and right. large, I obviously, mean, I, did, some actors would disagree and be like, "Hey, I was actually in a lot of really famous right. movies." And then he's like, "Sorry, I agree. have to go tour my one-man show, talking about Lindsay Anderson." Steps out on stage and goes, "You only get to be in two Mick Travis movies as great as these, and these are my defining." You films. only get to three, be on three, three Travis movies. Uh, well, three, but he only, <laughs> he only he, he only really talks about if and all like sure, that. He doesn't, sure. he doesn't talk about pretending hospital just saying, that much. I you, do that, that, you'll do that on Patreon, right? I do That's think, been oh, absolutely. The Mick Travis trilogy. <laughs> the Lindsay Anderson. Did you know that Alexander Siddig, a.k.a. Siddig Al-Fadil, do you know uh-huh. who that is? He was on Battlestar Galactica? Yeah, Deep Space Nine, but also a million other things. Oh, yes, you know, yes, that guy. Yes, yes. He's Malcolm McDowell's nephew? Really? The more you know. What would we do without David's computer? Introduce our podcast. Podcast is called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David, and you know that, of course, his son, Malcolm McDowell's son, directs movies. Charlie McDowell. Right. He made uh, The One I Love and yeah. some other stuff. Now, do you know who, Ben, do you know Yes. who is the mother of Charlie McDowell, Malcolm McDowell's son? No. In my, in my opinion, one we'll of put the- put a pin in the Charlie McDowell talk and just move on to your podcast. One of the stranger celebrity couples. A brief celebrity couple, right? Yeah, well, but, not a, that but a weird one. Like a decade. I think they had like a decade together. Yeah. Malcolm McDowell, Mary Steenburgen were married. They are. Oh, really? Those just like seem like such opposite energies, right? They made a movie I mean, together. I have such a crush Only on her. Time, time after time. Time after time. Yeah. Oh. Ever since I saw her in Clifford, I've had the biggest crush on her. So it makes perfect sense, to David. Me. You might but, have to clear out an extra hour. We got to dig into that. Uh, <laughs> the psychosexual energy. We have talked enough about Clifford. The other crazy thing is <laughs> that, do a third Clifford episode. The other crazy thing, of course, is he's one of those guys who then married again later in life and had kids when he was like seventy. Sure. So he's got like young children now. Yeah. He's got rugged. Look, he likes to work. He's an active yeah. fellow. 
You guys, you guys should plan playdates with Malcolm McDowell's kids. They're probably the same age as your kids. He lives in Ojai, apparently, so it's a bit of a trek from here. Okay. Ojai. Ojai, California. Yes. Sure. Ojai. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks and make whatever crazy passion projects they want, and sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce. Baby? Uh, yep. It's a mini-series on the films. Stanley Kubrick. It's called Pods Wide Cast. Today we're talking Clockwork Orange with the clockbuster himself when it comes to episode length, Alex Ross Perry. Punching the clock. A clockwork orange. A clockwork orange. Which brings me to one of my first questions. David, you like organization. Sure. You like uh, compulsive list making. Yes. Alphabetically. Alphabetically. A and then the title or title comma A. Oh, like This is one I... of my pet peeves, whichever one of these I disagree hmm. with. And you say this is a former video store employee. Yes. Someone who had to organize things. Clockwork Orange is an A movie to me. No, but I'm... So in a, if you were listing movies alphabetically, this would be first. Yes. Correct. Right. I, it drives me yeah. nuts when people... No, I don't like... Yeah, I'm not into Clockwork Orange, comma, A. Yeah, I it's not V. No. Z it's, is the only one that you're allowed to pull I couldn't agree more. With. I've been yeah. waiting to litigate this with you for months. I'm glad well, we already reached a resolution. We're, we're on... Right, we're on the same page. I, I just like a title that is this oblique and also has an unnecessary element to it. Because a this is not the story of the Clockwork Orange. No, this is just, just a one of many. It would be it funny if at one point he was like, "All right, feel like a bit of a Clockwork Orange right now." If he just said the title, right? The well, it's like system. a wedding, the, the Almond movie. Yes. I think you guys yes. talked about. That would wedding. drive me crazy too, right? If it was if I'm looking for a wedding in the A's, w. some clerk shuffles over and it's like, "Um, it's wedding, comma a." It just drives me nuts when people abuse the alphabet that way, as a not only an A name but a. Does it make you want to do a bit of the old ultraviolence? That doesn't drive me that nuts. Okay, but good. All right, good. We're not we're not at that stage. <laughs> no, no, we'll get let's there. Let's talk. Let's talk reasonably. Circle yeah, back. Let's check back in in about an hour yeah. and a half or so. We'll see how we're feeling. Well, keep... I think I'll be ready to commit some of the yeah. old ultraviolence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I th I think the thing that's interesting to me about McDowell, Malcolm is... McDowell, star right. of a Clockwork Orange. We, we you set up this as Kubrick, right? I, I, yeah, I, I said okay. that Clockwork Orange. I don't know. Alex. We interrupt each other a, a lot. I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone. I just, I'm not sure if you tangents. said the name of the show. I did. Oh, blank check. I heard it. Okay, blank check. I'm Griffin. Sorry. It all right. Okay. All right. All right. Right. It's it all. Right. Yeah. Haven't introduced our guest. I introduced him. Wow. Said that I I I do the Clockbuster, or maybe you didn't. I said that. I said that. I did. I said Alex Rosberry. Here we Alex are. Alex Perry to some. Alex to his friends. Alex DeLarge. Our, we call I him. went through a fit. My parents famously, David, you know this. It's hard to name a child. Mm. Now, you obviously picked your child's name from watching a movie. Uh, I don't want to say my kid's name. Well, on right, it, but, but the I name also of the, don't know what is you're the name of the movie. Is it? Boss Baby. The Boss Baby. Oh, right, right. It's hard to name things. My parents right. uh, just said, we, much like you may have done, we have a list of names. And we, we just clocked a name in a movie credits and we wrote it down and that name was Alex and it stuck. Oh, really? That's for, how your parents... Yes. And then for I years... Your parents being like, they don't Alex, remember what... They don't, they, I've heard. they don't remember what movie. They don't even remember what movie. It's just it was in the credits or a TV show or something. But then for years, I told people I was named after Alex in a clockwork orange. Right. And then I realized that reflected very weirdly on my parents. You uh, refer to this as your favorite movie of all time. On any given day, it's number one. Any given day, I could easily rank this number one without feeling like that is fraudulent. Did it make your sight and sound list? Not only that, if, it, if, if it's number one on any given day. You said to me it's number one with a bullet. 
Number one, yeah, on any given day. Right. It's easily the the only thing I, as a, imagining that I'm a chorus of people could all reach a consensus on and just say, it's just number one. But we were talking, both of you recently submitted your sight and sound list. And we were talking about this, Alex. Yeah. And you said, like, my list is Clockwork Orange number one. And then well, unranked, here's the rest but of them. Alphabetically. But, right. But that's alphabetically, what, it was number one, as we just covered. Were, but you were also saying, like, that that is the It's one. the movie. It's the movie it's of the my movie, life. And, and then it's ways. nine other films, even though the list isn't technically ranked. No. Yeah. It's okay. a very important film to me. I and I also, yeah, and I remember exactly when I saw it, which is fun. Tell us. When, when, did you, when did you see it? Well, so I came up with some dates here. Seven on June 16th, 1998. Prince at single space. The right. AFI. So, all right, all right, what's happening in the world? The, uh, well, the no, AFI Prince 100 is impeached. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, the AFI 100 On June 16th, is 1998, the AFI 100 is released. On June 29th and 30th, 1998, I, from Philadelphia, take the train up to New York to visit my grandparents who live in Westchester. Okay. Humble brag. So that on July You don't 20- live in New York, so it's a long train. No, it's like two hours. So that on June 29th, two weeks after the AFI 100 is released, I can go see The Prodigy at Hammerstein Ballroom by oh, myself. The, the electronic music act. Absolutely. Prodigy. Wow. Who I was a huge fan of at the time. Right. Ben, Prodigy. Sure. Yeah, Outer Space. Prodigy. Underrated. Let's still listen to Outer Space all the time, and my wife will be like, turn this off. You listen to The Prodigy... All the time. Outer space is a constant car jam for this, me. Pin in this. Pin in this. We're coming back. Is to that this. a song or is that the album? Pin in this. It's a song on their first album experience. Alex, we were debating whether or not to yes. talk about it, but that's a huge ass pin. And what's now? We'll put, it, we'll put a pin. Okay. A required so, so, well, so what is, is it like a sort of Gallagher size? It yes. could be. So yeah. what is it? It's, it's, it's a comically experience. Jilted Generation and Fat of the Land. Yeah, those so first Fat three of, albums are the good albums. Fat of the Land is blowing up. They're not playing in Philadelphia. I'm obsessed with them. I have to come to New York. So it's on that trip that I was already making my way through the AFI 100. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in my grandparents' basement and they took me to Blockbuster, I guess. And I rented it and watched it there. And that was my exposure to it. Because within two weeks, I was just, I must have looked at them and I thought, this seems like probably one of the first 10 movies on this list I should see. Now, at 1998, how old are you? I guess I was a few weeks shy of turning 14. So that's, I would say on the younger, it's a, it's a very violent and sexual To paraphrase the uh, final line film. of the first part of the book, and me, only 13 years old. Mm. Mm. I mean, I saw this movie for the first time in English class. We, we read book. this book. You mean your your fancy stupid liberal school that your wife Namby went Pamby. to as well? I know Anytime it makes fun of her too. You mock my stupid school that I hate that I, I went to. Make fun of her as well. Yeah, okay. you gotta dorks. Um, but we read the book, and then the first time I watched it was in an English class. I'm I was either fifteen or sixteen, but like a weird movie to watch with a teacher watching you watch it. Yeah, I probably wouldn't do that. A girl no. in my class when we watched it fainted and hit her head on the corner of a desk. Ooh. And they had to call the ambulance. Wait, so you also watched it in school? Yeah. Did you read it in school? No. Why did you watch it in school? PE class. <laughs> is like not like I, think I know. It, I, I think it was I think still, it was like a, a like a psychology class. But it was high school though, so that doesn't make sense. You guys I don't know it, what subject it was, you, but it was like Kind of maybe the teacher really beyond, phoning it in. Yeah, but beyond that, it's also like two and a half hours long. Like I got a bunch of classes you got to do. You're yeah. sitting there and your teachers are like, we're going to watch this movie. Just by the way, this movie is illegal to watch in yeah. certain other countries. It was illegal. But we'll just show it to you teenagers and assume that this is fine. That's what's insane is that like I'm watching this in a high school class in like 2003 or four. 
and you're like five, six years removed from this movie finally. I guess it's not banned. I guess I forget that. Yes. No, it was. Well, so in America, I don't think it was ever. No, and so many other countries. I mean, it's really really just Britain, I think. I mean, maybe I have a longer list. South Africa, Singapore, whatever, you know, like certainly. But like the thing about Britain is like when I was a teenager, where I grew up in that country. Wait, what country? Country of the United Kingdom and. Great Britain, Northern Ireland. What, when you say grew up, what like, do you? Well, you, you feel there? you feel like you grew up there. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if that's like what you, I meant. you sort of had like a coming of age? <laughs> I just age kind of feel kind like of I grew up there. The is this some kind of weird slang that you're invented? Yeah. For I don't understand what you're saying. This is I, I, there, I believe I this there. might be the most British film you've ever covered on the show. It might be because we have not covered enough. I mean, Stanley Kubrick is almost the more most British director we've ever covered in the sort of. I'm glad that you. I feel like you should have had a British person on. I'm glad I got to come in, but it's just there's nobody here that can really speak to the culture of this movie. It's the problem is that there's no one here who has any sort of lived experience yeah. of being a youth, an angry youth. In England. A disenfranchised yeah, so teen male. I moved to England in 1995. Wait, I'm sorry, I don't lived understand this there for 13 this years, which I've discussed on this podcast many times. This has never come up. Uh-huh. Much but, like, it's just like an unreliable sense of narration. That's right. Our humble narrator's lying. As many us. might know, Kubrick withdrew this film from Britain. Yes entirely pretty much in 1970s like pretty much just like a year after it came out and it was just not really shown again until he died there is this one cinema club that showed it in 93 and people sort of cite that as like see but like but he like sued them and they went into receivership or something like you know so really it was his death sure that brought it back in britain because this sort of self-imposed thing was gone in Ireland, the film was banned in 1973. It was finally released uncut in 1999. Same thing, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, what were the other ones here? Brazil. Yeah, but that's... The, South Africa. These, these are military dictatorships. Spain. Those are all dictatorships. Malta. I don't know. I can't speak to Malta, but the other three. Uh, why, why was it banned? Well, for various it's reasons. It's too good. It's like, you it know... It was too good. Okay, yeah. okay, that you checks know, out. It could be because of the sexual, you know, violence of it, or just sure, because, like, course. it's, you know, Does every time sexual something happened that was vaguely yeah. but, but copycat-ish... It was not banned in Britain. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, when I was a teenager, we were like, that movie is unwatchable because it's so fucked up. Yeah. That, like, like, like the other video, Nasties. Like, we... But no, it was just Kubrick saying, no, fine. You think it's too violent? I won't show it. Sure, but if and you did, you would. He would. He would. He would come after you because he had a bee in his bonnet, and he did wear a bonnet. He all famous also, a famous bonnet wearer. Yes, but like so. When That's it, why he didn't go out in public much because people when, made fun of his bonnet. <laughs> when I was thirteen years old, he died. <laughs> okay, uh, it must have, that must have been tough for you walking down the streets of New York City, an American boy. Born and raised, oh. mourning the death of Stanley Kubrick. A fellow Cooper. New York, yeah, a fellow New York. Yeah, my Bronx brothers, yes. fellow New York legend. <laughs> right. no, I remember my dad picked me up at the mall, and I got into the car, and he just looked at me, and he said, "Stanley Kubrick died," huh. and I just was like, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was already this is about one year into my love of. At that right. point, I'd seen many other of us, not all, but and at that point, I just couldn't believe. That this had already happened. To I me. remember being fairly shocked too. Obviously, it was also that because I've been looking for eyes wide shot movie for in production. Right, right. Yes. Yes. but he dies, and then pretty quickly after that, the movie is suddenly released on DVD mm-hmm. and VHS in Britain. And we, I was 13 years old. We were all like, Griffin described what I just did. Uh, his jaw dropped. Right. We were like, we're gonna see this fucking crazy movie. And so it was just this movie had a gargantuan 
like every teenager I knew was obsessed with it, including me a little bit. Like, you know, it was just sort of like- Because it gave this view into a a culture so far away from New York. Right. Fuck's sake, stop doing the bit. I'm canceling the bit. No more bit. I I want to talk about my life on this podcast. And this is such a British movie that there's this this chasm here. People try to be so crazy. Can I tell you that Alex texted me like two weeks ago and was like, I, we need to plan the most aggressive attack on this. It's just the most British, it's the most British movie. Someone tweeted at me at, at this time something. I don't, I can't remember what I tweeted back, but I was like, it really, you know, I'm just afraid to ever talk about anything because I think people yeah. will do the bit. And then someone texted me privately and was like, this is a very sad message from you. And I was like, yes, I meant it sincerely. Well, it's nice to have friends that like are someone like, clearly that's... texted me being like, you're just kidding, right? And I was like, no, not really. That's and it's good to feel. have people in your life that are like, that is sad. I'm going to keep I'm doing, keep right. doing yeah, it. 100%. The sadness is what this, fuels the engine in the your, car. Your wife essentially did the bit at your wedding, by the way. Yes. Yeah, which we discussed. Yeah. With the, this this legendary moment. This incredible moment. We gave her so many comedy points. Yeah, she did a great job. It was like rice beef thrown at her. She did, she did a great job. This episode, I think, is coming before the Shining episode. Uh, yes, but I, certainly, I can certainly hope it for listeners that for whatever reason, the Shining episode also contains a sort of like we've been too soft, you know, like someone taking their foot, uh, their shoe off and banging on the table being like, the bit must return. The bit must you picked a bat, yeah, well, because this episode, I mean, you picked, you know, I hope this episode comes in between 2001 and Barry Lyndon. Uh, it, it does. Okay. Yeah. Just I like this <laughs> Because you seemed unsure about where this movie fell before after The Shining. <laughs> no, I'm just, we've recorded that episode yes. anyway. We can refer to it as a done deal. I'm just alerting viewers to more of this nonsense in a couple this of This is weeks. a very British movie. It's a very Written British Written by movie. a very British novelist, uh, based on a very British actor. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a British-ish filmmaker. And sort stunning British character actors well, and locations. British character actors with locations, I would say. It's a very literally. British movie. But I'm also trying to say that like, for my generation of English teens... And I was What's a teen doing? when this movie was <laughs> like, I don't get this. Unbanned. He said he doesn't want to do bits. <laughs> He's going to murder you guys. And I'm going to have to clean up my apartment. <gasps> like, it was just like, I don't know. We It felt like our movie, even though this was an, a period, sure. an old film. Like, it felt like we got to discover this, this secret thing, even though that's kind of not even what it was. It was just Kubrick's bee in his bonnet. Right. My, my thing is, I mean, Alex raises a good point of just like, this is essentially a movie made by a British filmmaker, but what complicates this, and I have to explain this to you, David, is that Stanley Kubrick was born and raised in New York City. He was born and raised in Yon Bronx. But then he moved to England. Now, is the Bronx, Bronx comma the, or is it the Bronx? If you were listing the boroughs alphabetically, it would be under... Well, I don't know. The Bronx is burning, you would list under It could be like Ukraine, where they drop the the over time. That... Griffin yeah. is a great way to put it. Is the Bronx is burning, Bronx is burning, comma, the. Because the answer, according to a lot of style guides, would be no, because the Bronx is actually considered sort of like a proper name. On like the, the subway the map, does it right. say the Bronx when right. you look at the subway map? It's like the Batman. Uh, yeah. The v Batman. You know, v sometimes Bronx. when we do episodes on movies that are like, you know, going to potentially bring in new listeners, <laughs> right. I always we, like to sort of check in about 15 giving, or 20 minutes. We're getting the good stuff. Ben, Ben, seven, <laughs> on the subway, it is the Bronx. I seven remember, pages. Ben, seven space. pages, single space. We're, I just remember when I... Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people have hit the stop well, button, ben, is what I'm trying to we've, say. We've covered this much of pages. <laughs> oh, God. We've only covered when the AFI list came. Yeah, that's all I've gotten to. I can just, you know, speak... Uh, 
speed round. This has the great benefit. No, no, slow down. This has no the great ground. benefit of um, very rarely do I get to come in for an episode where I've already heard part of the miniseries because of you guys already oh, released. Sure. Like, so I sure. get to sort of join the conversation okay, so of Kubrick rather than not knowing how you're talking about him. Mm -hmm. Okay, but did you finish your thought about teen... Yeah, David. Yeah, I'm the, done. This the, was this was. Should I do more about me being English? David and his droogs. Do you want to? Yeah, I'm sure it'll come up again. Yeah, I, just I, like I, a I, classic. I don't know if this is true for you guys. What did but you guys any, dress up as the droogs? He beat me to it. Any Halloween I went to as a sure. teenager, someone was dressed. Which up. one yes, were no. you? Dim. <laughs> I mean, Dim's, Dim's kind of the big one, right? So I probably, big, I probably would have been Dim if I had to do it. David Dim's. <laughs> no, no, Save It Dim's. You blew it. Save It Dim's. That was people would hit me with that all the time. They they oh, flip me out if funny. you swap the letters. That's funny. Like you'd be like Niffin Grumman. Right. Kind of cool. It is cool. Yeah, exactly. I like that guy. You'd be like. Alexi. It's harder with vowels. Yeah, you can't, harder, you can't uh, flip yeah. vowels. But, but but then people would be doing it and then they'd go. Ken Bosling? You'd be what? Save It Dim's. Ken. And they'd be like, wait a second, save it dims. Save it dims. So save no one dims. no one ever got you into a dim bowler. You never no, went full dim. You never went full dim. No. Even though it's an easy-ish Halloween. I costume, suggested doing right? it today. Yeah, Bart did it. it. Who did it? Bart Simpson. He did do it. Bart did it. He's one of them. Right. Uh, I just feel like you guys, it's very appealing. The troops were at I'm, Space Jam, right? I'm, they went to the yes, I caught yes that I didn't like see the movie, yeah. but I that was one of the IP. I have an I have an IP related quandary for Kubrick. Yeah. Could bring it up now since you. Br I was something I wanted to bring up for closing thoughts. It could also be opening thoughts. Yeah, it's more of a closing. Thought. Let's start the episode. Yeah, um, enough dicking around. I just feel like it's very daunting for you guys to cover Kubrick. These movies are yes. not easy to talk about. No. There's no lack of information on right. them, it's and everyone daunting. after a certain point is absurdly complicated and thorny to understand the intentions or the filmmaking of. Well, also it's just sort of like. We're, we're, we've only got two to three hours here. No, Note I mean, that. I would say um, three to four. But. You know, it's like, <laughs> we're going to say whatever we think, but like, there's no way we could possibly encompass no. everything that's been thought about these movies. They're basically the movies that could do, you know, someone could say I'm doing a 10 episode podcast on right. 2001 or Clockwork. That, the exercise for me has been Barry Lyndon like, could be one of those like minute and episode movies. Yes. Sure. The exercise for me has been watch the movie and try to take all the pressure off of it and then just do an episode responding to what I thought watching the film just now Agreed. rather than feeling the pressure being like this is the Clockwork Orange episode right. we have to do everything about well, the there, that's my approach unfortunately all, yeah. unfortunately that's my approach but I, I do feel like it's been interesting hearing you kind of get Kubrick started I think I told you both this uh, you know previously but I feel like you were you were a little hard on Fear and Desire in the earlier movies you're a big Fear and Desire defender I defend Fear Your and Desire I think Fear and Desire made was sort of an homage not sort, sort of. of it's not this is an yeah. homage I just think that if you're young, as we were when discovering Kubrick, you're uh -huh. David, uh, you know, we're both renting NTSC VHS tapes of Kubrick movies and watching oh, my, them. My VHS the tapes were long. They were languorous, right? Is Pal longer? I can't remember. Longer? Because there's a time difference with Pal and NTSC. It's 24 to 25 frames a second. Which is the longer one? Pal is an extra yeah, frame. Yeah, a nice long VHS. So your family had like an import <laughs> deck, right? You were... Yeah. Yeah, of course. That's uh, crazy. I was just like, I want to spend more time with these movies. Give I just, me an extra frame, baby. Oh, I you just had to go to like photo the, to get one of those. The excitement of discovering him as the sort of, to you know, reference obvious monolith of film, which mm. he was already, but before sure. he died. Yeah. He's sort of by that point the defining filmmaker of the second half of the 20th century in many ways. Sort of mm -hmm. baton passes from Hitchcock to him I would mm -hmm. say in so. terms of just yeah. Mount Rushmore. And just also, at least for decades, probably, right, the most famous named director. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Even though he made, I don't know, 25% as many films as Hitchcock. Sure. But I felt like seeing Fear and Desire, and to a lesser extent, Killer's Kiss, is just sort of this important thing from an artist's standpoint of like, 
wow, Stanley Kubrick started here. Right. It, that, that to me is, I think, something that was just, I just wanted to correct the record a little bit. You didn't really mention, it's just, you You see 2001, you Wait, see this movie. you coming in just to correct the record on the stupid fear and desire yeah, that's right. where we were just like tired? Well, no, this is this, what we said. Insofar as I'm saying, this is my relationship with Kubrick. Also, I, I think, think it's a piece of shit. I just think it's incredibly crucial because Hitchcock, it's like, you know, those early silent films, they're not masterpieces. No and one also, thinks, no one really. It's a different thinks, era. Right. But no I just feel like right. watching Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, because nobody... Killer's Kiss is probably the last Kubrick movie most people would get around to seeing sure. prior to Fear and Desire being uh -huh. available. Being available, right. Seeing those movies is just like, wow. So he really, like, he he started small. That yeah. is such a crucial lesson about him that kind of got written out of history with the availability of the white box set being so common. Where, did the, the white box set begin with... Lolita. Lolita. And no Spartacus. Didn't, didn't have Spartacus, right. And then when that it was originally was released, no eyes wide shot. But just those three early ones, the MGM DVDs, yeah, those were not, you know, you had to go get those separately. There yeah, was no yeah. box set. And I remember as a teenager, the 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 rap on those was like, yeah, and he made those, You'll get you know, that. whatever. Yeah, right. It was like for hire. They're all shorter. Yeah. They're all kind of rougher. They're black and the white. The white box set, which was like the 98, 99 release, which gets updated well. with Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Uh, Warner Brothers uh, licensing some of the other films. Just Strange Love. Oh, right, right. It did feel like it was like, these are the films that he is presenting yeah. as his oof. This is the collection. Right. The other ones, you're not like... They don't really count. Well, it's like, well, they got... I'm looking at the spine. Strangelove has the Columbia logo, so obviously they could have gotten Paths of Glory if they wanted. Right. Just right. in the box set. But I feel like those earlier ones, you know, it was sort of like, I'll get to them. So I just think as like a filmmaker, mm. it's just invaluable to be like, you can make Fear and Desire. And then later you can make 2001. Absolutely. That is a sure. truly possible arc for an artist. You don't have to start by making Lolita. You don't have to start by I mean, making an Academy yes. Award nominated film. There's you get to make like a scrappy kind of thing and still become Stanley Kubrick. There's something about him not being this like out of the box wonderkind. It's just worth mentioning rather no, than absolutely. rather than saying no, that the movie is valueless. You are correct. I didn't say it was valueless. I think I said it was bad. Threw your hands over your head and said it stinks. Yeah, it stinks. Stank up the joint. I well, opened all the windows. It, that to me, that sounds like you're saying it's value. You're saying it's value no. is as something that stinks. I yeah, saw it, people it, saying this we, on the. I think we said, you know, I cannot remember anything I've ever said I on this podcast. Either. But you know, I think we were sort of like, oh, there's some interesting imagery. It sort yeah. of starts out more interesting than it ends. Yeah. I saw someone on the Reddit say, like, there is this thing that's kind of beautiful about watching Fear and Desire and and seeing, like, the mortality of this man it's in important. a way. It's very important. We Even, like, you're talking, like, this. following, you're yeah. like, oh, it's all there. Everything is right. there. The character has the same name as Inception. He just refines it. It's all there. Right. Mm. Then the leap to Memento is not as huge as we thought it was when it's like, and he right. made some other. But the, the Fear and the Desire to these wild. movies, once you're in this run, it's like, Jesus, that is crazy that this guy leveled up that strongly just like in the span of seven movies. Well, we were also talking about this, Alex, and I feel like uh, this is the other thing if we have any sort of like, uh, not agenda in doing Kubrick and our approach, but I do think it's a thing we keep on coming back to is like, I do find it annoying the way he's sort of been mythologized into being like other world. Well, Griffin, you'll see the next section on my thing says correcting the Kubrick myth. There we go. And there is something Which I about would like to talk about. Watching Fear and Desire where you're like, this is a guy who just like gets in over his head and fucks up and can't figure out how to make a good movie. And so much of him not doing press, being quote unquote reclusive, which just means that he wasn't like going on the Dick Cavett show. Sure. But I mean, also, he did press and was fairly accessible up to up around to now. 
Yeah. He now is when he starts to stop really doing interviews. And, and this stuff, movie might have like, been part of it. But it's yeah. that thing when people talk like people who are friends with Terrence Malick and they're like, he's not reclusive. He just doesn't like talking to the press. He's a little reclusive. Right. But yes. But yes. but similarly, both of those guys, the mythologies around them become they, so This great. is a huge problem that happens with mythologizing. And Kubrick yes. is someone that even when he died, it was such he was such a mystery to the public. Yeah. And this give and then like as I sort of outlined here and we can talk about like this idea that, you know, you has been mentioned once or twice, not by you guys, on earlier episodes, that like, oh, he just, uh, like, you know, he's just this maniac, he's controlling, he has to, he can't shoot on the street, he has to build New York City. It's like, well, the movie I just watched for the 100th time is entirely location. All locations. Four, built, four, like, a couple sets, yeah. Four built sets. Yeah. Barry Lyndon. Locations, obviously, a lot of them with some interiors perhaps dressed or changed. Full Metal Jacket obviously has this wonky kind of sense of British right, Vietnam. It's got the weird UK It's location, Vietnam. though. Right. This idea that he's like this cloistered, like he can't breathe fresh air. He has to create these worlds. That's just people that are like, well, 2001 is probably his most huge accomplishment. Mm -hmm. I love The Shining. And then Eyes Wide Shots his last movie. So I look at those three films. I see a lot of interiors and a lot of sets. I made up my mind about who he is as a filmmaker. Sure. And it's like, well, every other movie in the middle there kind of dispels this notion. I mean, this is a a very loose movie. This is a, a wild and frenetic and chaotic movie mm. by his standards. By his standards. In yeah, by his standards. Yeah. In I don't know that I would call this movie wild. You would not call Clockwork Orange wild? I'd call it wild. Wild's, I think wild is certainly inappropriate. We're when you're swinging a handheld camera around, yeah, filming like, like a, a, a physical assault, yeah, you're, you're like, so. this is very orderly, this is very <laughs> British and very proper. No, I didn't say it was orderly. I'm just saying this is in between David also 2001 and Barry Lyndon. For what proper British? No, I, yeah, right, no. Right. Well, I wouldn't know. But in between those two films, which are obviously immaculately designed, both in terms of the aesthetics, the mm -hmm. sets, the camera, this movie is very much not that, and it really pops the bubble on the idea that he's just like this creator of these false sets and everything has to be perfect and just so. I mean, I really, I really think a lot of that is the eyes wide shut and Full Metal Jacket. It's like the end of career thing of like, oh, now he really can't leave England and he's. You know, he's stretching reality in that he's making a Vietnam movie and a New York movie without leaving it. And it that overwrote does, you know, right. a it, lot it, of it, it what was actually true yes. about in The Shining yeah. as well. This, you know, American yeah. Rockies thing built in this. But like, right. it just sort of changed the perception of the earlier works. Whereas what I think he's more interested in, you see it in this movie, but you see it in all the movies, really. I mean, certainly 2001. He's more interested in these perfect worlds that are broken by chaos. He's not interested in perfect worlds that remain perfect. Even in Barry Lyndon, the sort of decline of the of the the fortunes of these characters, he really loves, especially in but in Lolita as well, like these characters that you start off and the, everything is just so. Yeah. Either in their lives or in the world they live in, and by the end, it's all thrown into chaos. Mm. And that's really more his thing than like everything thing. just is its own perfect. I mean, I, this is this is literally the plot of Eyes Wide Shut. And my problem with him, yes, absolutely. And my problem with what with the mythologizing also is like I just think it gets boring to call him like cold and hermetic, and like I feel like these are just like uh, words people throw around that don't apply to most of his movies or whatever. I wouldn't call him wild either, though. But I don't know. Maybe but I also yeah, think maybe I, I, the idea that he was just like this genius with perfect judgment who built the world as he saw it in his mind was correct. Didn't talk to anybody and then died. Sure. is uninteresting to me. I think people love this idea where it's just like he was blessed with the perfect sense of cinema and he like came down to earth, 
made his perfect movies and right, then died. Right, right. right. And I'm Ascended like, to God. Right. To so much of our fucking podcast is about like trying to figure out these fucking people who made these movies to some degree, not even necessarily psychoanalyzing them, but it's like obviously tracking this within their career and their films being responses to their previous films, what's going on in the world, mm -hmm. their own life, all this sort of shit. And like the more people try to put Kubrick in this like alien box, the less interesting I find him. I wonder how his career would be perceived if he'd made Napoleon or whatever, you know, the yeah. Napoleon movie. Like if he had thrown a sort of more traditional biopic, massive epic into the later stage of his career, if that would have changed. Or the Aryan perception. Papers is the other one. If right. he just made a Holocaust movie. Like, rather than ending his career on, oh, and then he, like, drove the most famous couple alive insane with his, you know, many take masks. Right, so but the fact that that whole movie is about, like, secret societies exactly. and shit. And then he died and they right. divorced. You know, like, right. he died suspiciously close. Yeah, it, 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 it all sort point. of has overwritten, like, the sort of, oh, he just, he, he hated actors. Like, you know, sure. oh, he, if he couldn't, if he worked without act, but it's like, you look at the looseness and the freedom that he's giving Peter Sellers, sure. uh, Malcolm McDowell in this movie. There's like there, there's a looseness to his trust of actors in this middle period that did clip Malcolm's eyes and probably we'll we'll made we'll him that. do that we'll for that. like many days. We'll get to that. That's we'll just that. that that's just part of the movie. We'll get to that. But but Alex did raise this good. Alex and I went to a drive-in last weekend. Oh, we did. So we had been a long day together. Two three-hour car rides just talking about things in depth. But you did bring up this point where you're like, the two actors he gave primary roles to twice. He never worked with actors twice except for two examples in lead roles. Peter Sellers and Timothy Carey. Two of the most... That's it? Material. Yeah. In, in, in Wait, terms of like hard. leading... Obviously, there's lots of... Because like, right, like Patrick McGee. There's lots of bit players. But no, in terms of like people right. that would be quote unquote right. on the he poster. He never did the kind of Nolan or PTA he thing. He had no of, company. Like, hey, Joaquin. Like, and he did it back. He had no company and he certainly didn't have it in the last Eight, you know, seven movies. Right. But early on, he did have this kind of sense of letting these two unpredictable performers come back for seconds. Right. Or in the case of Sellers, like for fourths and fifths. Hey. And that, to me, is like, when people don't realize that or they don't point that out, it's just like, oh, yeah, he hated actors. It's like, if he hated actors, why do you let Peter Sellers come back a second time just to fuck around and be crazy? Sure, but there's a bit of a... It is interesting, because, like, 2001 has no movie stars in it, obviously. Right. But then post that... I mean, you could... McDowell is the well, this is what we were. This is the other thing we were saying, is that, like, they are men who know how to comport themselves within a professional environment more than Carrie and Sellers, perhaps. But, like, McDowell and Nicholson are both, like, insane live wire behavioral... Sure. Uncontrollable actors. They As is, to a lesser extent, Tom Cruise. Right. And Ryan O'Neill is a pain in the butt. Is a pain in the butt. But less of call that. call him a live wire actor. Less right. of but the he, But he's a major thing. movie star. He worked with major movie stars in everything but Full Metal Jacket after yeah. Strange Love. But, I mean, the, but a lot of the people he favored are famously then or now. Like, well, that he's just like a total maniac Denofrio of an actor. also kind of like right. notoriously. He's just not, and he's he likes just. It's interesting that he would often work with major stars at the heights of their career. Yes. Right. And, you know, and, 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 like, but, and I just think he, he liked chaos. is the movie star version of the chaos. That's the thing. It was like, that's a guy who knew how to like control the chaos. This, this More is than point. people Sometimes. have now given him credit for, especially yes. post Eyes Wide Shut, mm -hmm. which again is like taking, you know, Tom Cruise, he's, he's a very chaotic, physical, exuberant performer at his best. 
I mean, it certainly can be. Yeah. And he yeah. puts him like I just think that this sense of Kubrick has once again kind of been lost to time and is worth scrutinizing ever so slightly. Cruz's performance in Eyes Wide Shut, which we will discuss later, is unusual in the Cruz canon. It is, but no one's like, Tom Cruise is kind of like a boring, low low heart rate actor. Especially no, now, but no one thinks of him that people way. People said that about his performance in that movie. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah right. But I mean, that's, kind, you agree, know, but whatever. You'll talk about but, it later. But also right. the idea that it's like, oh, here's this guy who creates these like, a hermetic controlled airless oh, ecosystem. And then you're it like, is. It's, uh, it's, no, I'm just saying he did have a tendency to put like wild animals into those yeah, yeah, ecosystems. The Shining yes. and Eyes Wide Shut, especially. It, it, right? And what when, when those are two about, of your like, three last right. films yeah. that define yeah. basically the back third of your legacy, right? It's hard for people to not be like, that's that's been over everything from these movies has been overwritten. Maybe he should have, like, you know, done some contracts, you know, Sister Act. He could have come in on that. Done sister you know what I mean? Act. He should just sprinkle in some other sister stuff. act. <laughs> sister act. <laughs> a sister act. Getting even with dad. We were just talking about that in the we car. We were talking about getting even with dad. I had my own car ride with Alex. Oh, okay. It wasn't three hours each way. Very but, short. Uh, but we why were did, talking why getting, talk even, getting with even with that. We were talking Macaulay. Yeah. Why were we talking Macaulay? It's not worth going it's back. It's a shame no, Kubrick never got to do Macaulay. That's Macaulay could have been a David in an earlier stars. version of AI if that had gotten up on rails Absolutely. a little bit earlier. Certainly true. But but I just, again, like this is... Might have even been good. This is a crucial Maybe. thing that you guys are fortunately, I believe, able to do throughout the run of this series and already are to an extent. It's just like re-examining these not from the mythological perspective that they've taken on. Which I... Right. Really opening the conversation back up and hopefully yeah, getting to hopefully. sort of reappraise like... You know, to me, the sort of like it is possible to view his body of work as a consistent rumination on a theme, even though, as is often pointed out, he never really made the same movie twice. And yeah, almost sure. every movie he made is a different so genre. Right. And as, as has been pointed out, almost all of his movies could be in the running for the number one greatest movie in their respective genre. The only thing I'll say, and it's loose, is that you could kind of argue that Strange Love 2001 and Clockwork Orange all have science fiction. Well, that's not elements. even. I mean, that's right. that's in the in the in the Michelle Simant interview book that I have. I don't have that. Well, I pulled some quotes from that it, was and just I the brought Sims it with original. Me. He that's says he says to. I mean, I can pull that quote up. He says like you've kind of made this trilogy about right. man's grappling with the future. Right. Right. And I I have quotes about that. Also, we'll David. I, but I can... the, but but he was. That's what I'm saying. He's always on. Drag me. He's always on these themes. It's not that. But yes. No one would look at those movies in a superficial Griffin is viewing. hitching me up to a Toyota camera because he's going to drag I'm not going to drag you. No. I just want to push back on something. Oh, while what? you drag David. What? That shouldn't be the the one thing you say for the rest of this episode. We have multiple hours left to go. Oh, did I say it? I'll you say said if I can I'm just done. say one thing. <laughs> no, I'm done. I'm out. I You can't expect Alex and I to do all the lifting. <laughs> you don't think that, I just left it all on the table. You don't no, think that, baby. It's okay point and it was Here Sims original and you branded it as such. But All right, I'm ready to do it. If I got yeah, him, <laughs> just throw the baton to Ben. I'm going to take the laptop. Box office's game is in there. Somewhere. Okay, so that pod chair in the one room is pretty cool. Ben That's has his own note. notes. Yes. This is Ben's note. <laughs> top note. Okay, uh, wait. No, I, wait. I just want to say, uh, and this is not the only thing I'm going to say. But if I can say one thing right now, you can. People in the, in the Fear and Desire Killers Kiss episode were like, "Ugh, they sound bummed out that they have to do Kubrick, that we force their hand. No energy. Is this going to be a slot?" We say people. We mean, you know, some people on the Reddit that we maybe should just our stop humble redditors, at. right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but as you said, I we were just fucking tired that episode. 
and stressed out and whatever. But the other thing was, like, I say in that episode, admittedly, which I think is a thing that people were like, oh, no. I was like, Kubrick, not one of my guys. Admittedly, not one of my guys. I guess you say that right at the top of the mini. Right. Yeah. I will say, watching and rewatching these movies, I'm like, oh, I like Kubrick a lot more than I think I do. And I think a lot of the reason why, in my mind, I don't think of myself as a Kubrick guy is because of how much I resent the mythology that's built around him and the attitude of quote-unquote Kubrick guys. And you watch these films and, and just they take are, them as movies. They are vibrant yes. and bizarre and clumsy. They're not these perfect objects. No. They're awkward and weird and inscrutable and mysterious. And people are just like, yeah, they're just like these, you know, terrariums of filmmaking. But the mysterious shit also ends up like feeding yeah. this. Like every one of his movies was some I, uh, mystery, some Dan Brown, so dark the con of man mystery for us to solve. I've got the quote here. Okay, here's so, the This quote. book that I've always had since I was a teenager, French critic, Michel Cement, Simon, I don't know. Don't, don't quote me on my mispronunciation. It would appear that you intended to make a trilogy about the future in your last three films. Mm. Have you thought about this? There is no deliberate pattern to the stories I have chosen to make into films. About the only factor at work each time is that I try not to repeat myself. Since you can't be systematic about finding a story to film, I read anything. So no, he's just like, I reject your hypothesis. Also, my next plan is to make a trilogy of films about Tetris, the game. We think cool. this narrative is too big for one film. Do you remember that? No. It was, I don't know, some fucking pandemic variety headline that was like, studio announces trilogy of Tetris movies, and they were just calling their shot. Why why not make it, is it five that would be a Tetralogy? Why not make it the Tetris Tetralogy? Yeah, it would be the way to do it. Well, he's a coward. Put it on the blank check slate. I think that's four. You'll just get the right. Tetralogy is four. Isn't that quadrilogy? Because that was the alien alien box. Quadrilogy is not a real word. I believe quadrilogy is in the encyclopedia next to a picture of the alien quadrilogy box. It is amazing how that box set has ruined the minds of men like us. Ah, of course, forever. the quadrilogy. The quadrilogy. Four, yes. illogy, yeah. movies. Absolutely. <laughs> that word is valid forever because it's, of it's... whoever in the Fox fucking home video department. It's the uh, it's the monorail man saying... No, but it is 100% quad, it was a conversation. Quad equals four, trilogy equals movie. Yes, I mean, that's the thing, because it was some guy was like, here we are in the alien tetralogy box set, and some exec was like, Tetralogy. Tetralogy sucks. <laughs> Come on, let's zazz that up. Yeah. Uh, no, five would be pentology, of course. Uh-huh. Well, then it's, then it's only four Tetris movies. Perfectly um, reasonable. But anyway, there's let's your quote. Let's move on to, what's the next line item in your... Well, look, uh, oh, okay. I just want to talk Don't about two... Them, you've already brought... I'm rushing them. I'm wondering. No. I'm actually genuinely interested. You've already, Are you dragging? You've already backed us into one of these, so we're <laughs> right there. Are you rushing or dragging? <laughs> Not my there's two important things, one of which you just brought up, which is either in the surface or under the surface of, I think, almost every Kubrick movie. And certainly here, it's the surface. And you just mentioned it, is this recurring theme he's always grappling with of technology or weaponized machinery mm-hmm. aiding man in its ongoing inevitable downfall. Uh-huh. This is in some way or another, just this distrust of technology or this looking at innovations and the reminder that man would be smart to not try to innovate further, but to control themselves within, right? Like Dr. Also, Strangelove in 2001 yeah. and this movie are very literal examples of of that of that theme Certainly. for sure. The They're amount the of most, war films right. he made that it's well, like the ostensibly the only quote unquote genre that he did multiple times. Well, and it's the, the very nature of just like self-destruction. Well, what's the difference between the firing squad at the end of Paths of Glory and the sniper at the end of Full Metal Jacket? 
That's an advancement of a gun. Yes, right. It's designed to deliver a bullet. One of them, you have to line people up and look them in the eye. And the other one, you can just be a complete absent figure and kill someone from a, a half a mile away. Mm. And this is him looking at the development of something as simple as a gun, which, of course, you see in its rudimentary musket form in Barry Lyndon, sure. and being like, the more we innovate this stupid thing called a gun, the easier and less human the act of killing someone in combat becomes. And obviously the end of Paths of Glory is very human, devastatingly human. And the sniper at the end of Full Metal Jacket is just random arbitrary and violent. And that's this sort of progression that he looks at throughout the 20th century of just mankind doing everything they can to hasten their own destruction. And the Ludovico technique in this movie is just that writ large, which is why I love this movie so much, is it takes all of his themes and makes them basically the main course in one film. So just the, and the, you know, the final thing on the technology aspect, uh, he has a quote here from this book as well. Modern science seems to be very dangerous because it has given us the power to destroy ourselves before we know how to handle it. On the other hand, it is foolish to blame science for discoveries. Sure. And in any case, we cannot control science. It's the people. So he's basically just like, his, his attitude is just like, look, we're going to invent things we don't know how to control and that's going to be a huge problem for us. People shouldn't do that, but they're going to because that's the way progress works. Right. And this so what do we all do? about the folly of trying to control human nature. Well, that's the, you can. Yeah. Griffin, you just backed me right up into the other point. There I we go. Because that is what every one of Kubrick's movies is about. Sure. I, I, I believe and I'm quite certain. Every one of his movies is about the inherent flaws of the human character and the inability of man or mankind to not give in to their instincts of being unpredictable and therefore leading yourself into destruction, right? Like, things such as fear and desire? Fear and desire is that because it's examining the cowardice of I was people. saying the literal. Yes, but also, instincts. I mean, yeah. but, you know, killers, ki killers Kissed is kind of like Boxer's fear Lament. Desire, are they in Inside Out? Yeah, absolutely. In the yeah. what? Fear and Inside Well, fear actually is in Inside Out. Isn't oh, you're listening to characters in Inside guys. Out. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, like, Desire look, was played by Creed Bratton. <laughs> <laughs> you look at, like, even the like, you know, the boxer and Killer's Kiss up to Eyes Wide Shut. Like, the central theme in all of these movies is about the morality of the plot driving the characters to a decision where they either have to act in the spirit of free will or give themselves over to making a huge mistake, which is what Alex does in this movie, in the way that Hal malfunctions and says it must be human error. Mm. A computer can never be perfect because it's still built by a man. Yeah, I mean, my favorite... I mean, obviously, 2001 does not endeavor to tell you why Hal goes crazy. But Hal offers the explanation he, that... He says maybe it's human error. It's a programming I, error. I but I've just always liked it as like Hal just... His continued existence eventually comes to like people. I think he just spent too much time on Twitter. <laughs> That's what it is. He got red pill. He got posters disease. He got brain worms. But if you look at that in the context of his other movies, like his point of view is like, of course there was a human error. There's always a human error. What's the human error in the Ludovico technique? It's that you can never count on this programming being undone. What's the human error in Bill and Eyes Wide Shut? It's that he's just too damn curious. He can't leave well enough alone. Mm. What's the human error in, you know, Barry Lyndon? It's that he just can't quit while he's ahead. Yeah, Every one of these sure. movies is about Barry someone. Barry Lyndon is like uncut gems, but twice as long, where you're just like, Barry? And he's like, and pastoral. Yeah, right, right. But I don't think thing. it's, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure it's like that necessarily, but I see what you're saying. Barry just keeps... Like you said, like there are just moments in Barry Lyndon where you're like, okay, now Barry, you got out of that scrape. You make me just realize make it easy. Barry Lyndon's a bit of a gilly. He's <laughs> Barry. Barry? <laughs> but you and, see what and, I'm saying? Sorry. Bill in Eyes White Shut is more of like a target lady. 
You see what I'm saying, though, that like this theme of like the fact that his belief in human and you see this basically in the bones of AI is that nothing touched by man can ever not fail. My favorite theme of AI, right. Is Is that if mankind and the brain of man and the spirit of man is ever given a chance, they will somehow fuck it up. Yeah, we suck. That's that temptation. That's Lolita. That's Spartacus even to an extent, even though that's like obviously an asterisk of a movie in terms of his development of it. Like, no, but like, yeah. He's attracted to this theme over and over that it's like, I believe man is capable of many great things. The one thing I believe they are definitely capable of is failure and making the wrong decisions. Because like in Spartacus, a lot of it is them being like, we built this Roman society that functions. And a lot of the movie is these senators being like, why do we just want to be powerful instead? Right? Like, why can't we help like just wanting, you know, tending towards tyranny at the end of it? And like with AI, I mean, we've ranted about AI, although we could probably just do another AI episode. Yeah, maybe we should. I mean, it's such a good movie. That'd be fun. It's just like the idea of like humans being like, what do robots not have? I know. They don't love. Yeah. We love. Love is great. This robot should love. And the robot is like, I love. Oh, God, this is so existentially crushing. Well, it's the like, like fucking consciousness is a prison thing, but also yeah. like intellect and the idea of intellect, the idea that we perceive ourselves to be like smart and evolved and look at what we built and look at how far we've come as opposed to these other fucking animals right. we are clearly superior and you're like those animals like there there is an order there's a structure sure, basically they, they thing. to how they behave and we like pat ourselves on the back for like jamba juice but then we're just like none of this makes sense and we're fucking everything up all the time 2001 ends with jamba juice right it does on the he arrives that's what all the juice. colors the colors are the different varieties <laughs> of jamba right. juice. he's getting erasmus it's full of juice strawberry surf riding but this is like, the, again, like what I love about this movie above all his others is that it takes all the themes of his other movies before and after and literalizes them into the actions of the character and the actions right. done to the character. I like that it has a big fiberglass dick. That's what I like about it the most. Well, hold on. Put a pin in that. Okay. Alex, what's next on your document? Well, what's next on my document is really digging into uh, digging into the movie oh, A Clockwork Orange. The rest yeah, of it right, gets right, into yeah. issues more. I, I feel like, you know, I want to just set up the Kubrickness of this. Sure. And, Could I pose and, and, something and give Ben the opportunity to uh, to you, Alex? Ben. Yeah, Ben is drinking a glass of milk that and 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 a huge glass. Yeah, of milk. none of you touched your drugged milk. Well, I'm sipping some tea, which David uh, is a, a beverage that's incredibly popular in British culture. Very true. Chai, as Alex calls it. Yeah, Kubrick's kind of <laughs> go on. This movie is like a punk, it's like pre-punk. It is. It's a very urtech movie. Like, but, but you yeah. see, even in its supposed again, no one here can speak to this banishment in England from the seventies. It, it it does coincide very nicely with the appearance of fairly radical British cultural shifts. But also, as a seventy-one movie, like this movie just looks like the worst of eighties England somehow. Yeah, here's a question for you guys that that kept on running through my brain while watching this movie, while rewatching this film. How would you describe the aesthetic of this film? Brutalist. Yeah, I would say I would just say dystopian, and I feel like, but people's idea of a dystopian society—they're just picturing this movie. But there are like four or five contradictory aesthetics, I think, coexisting in this movie. Where I'm like, I don't even know how to synthesize. Well, you, I guess, like, right, the interiors, especially the fancy yeah. houses, or the sort of like mid-century moderny, or what, like white, like, and there's all kinds of. But he goes Britain, not to speak of a country that I grew up in. I'm sorry, what? But in the 60s, Britain embraced brutalist architecture, I would say probably more than some countries. So you grew like, up like, yeah, so now he's just saying he grew up in the 60s. This is just a bit. I did not insane. grow up in the 60s. He's, tr- um, he's trying to last night in Soho us. Yeah. He's like, claiming he like, fucking took a nap and woke up in the 60s swinging. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go downtown. 
like I feel like now that brutalism is regarded almost brutally. More, no, I mean now there are people who are like that was a legitimate movement in architecture, and like there's brutalist art and architecture that should be you know landmarked and uh -huh. you can't destroy it even though like at the time people were like oh these ugly concrete blocks like sure what is the world coming to now britain has like you can walk around england and find some of the most amazing brutalist architecture and be like look this thing is incredible to look at but it all just looks like clockwork orange to me yeah when you see it. it's got a bit of a clockwork it, it all a lot feels of england, ominous a lot of but also those, like the, the aesthetic yeah. is it's also like it now looks like what we think of is kind of post-cold war kind like i remember a couple of years ago i went to um bratislava and everything there just looked like clockwork orange what i yes it's sure. very influenced fashion wise by mod feels yeah, like is. kind of proto new wave but you, but you're right like there's this pre-punk element to it there's like this pre-rave culture element to it. Sure. You know, there, it's, there's it's this very pop from biker gang yeah. culture too. Yeah. It, it's right in between like the leather biker boys right. and their gangs and like, you know, a, a roving street gang of thugs well, in the late 70s. It's just synthesizing so many different things into like a mashup that I don't even know but how to But then what's quantify. inside, but then the contradiction that I love about Kubrick as a filmmaker and about this movie and Alex as a character is all of that is true. But as David said, like, what is inside of that? You have exactly what you're describing. And inside of it is beautiful mid-century homes. Inside of that is a deep, like a love of Ludwig van. Inside right, right. of that mm -hmm. is this sense of class and culture that is nestled within a rotting society. And that to me is just this beautiful kind of, you know, up, down, black, white uh, version of the movie where it's like you walk out of these horrible housing tracks and you drive a little bit and you're in these just like stunning rural homes because society has gone to seed, but there's some people hanging on to the nice version of society yeah. just outside the city limits. But everything within the city is like, you know, fucked beyond repair. You see the state of Alex's lobby. They believe in the system still and they still like march around and tap their fucking shoes and shit. Well, and salute. I sure. mean, but it's like half he's mockingly, mocking. But it's also, it's, yeah. It's, he's just, he's mocking the system and he like scoffs at authority and but, those but, are all punk ass but things. as much as you're mocking it there's also an element of like what you're saying Alex there's there's this sort of odd way in which they're upholding it in the way that like kids pretend to be cowboys you know so one of the most famous what I think is also interesting about everything you're saying is one of the most famous sequences is that you know by the water right there's that estate the concrete estate where it's by the water really jumping around I'm not jumping around. Look, this, this, this location, yeah, right? Sure, they use yeah. it, I feel like, a couple times. It's where he beats up the other droogs. Yes. Right? And it's like, that to me, I understand completely why Kubrick found it appealing because it's like, it does look post-apocalyptic almost, right? Mm -hmm. Or dystopian, whatever you want to call it. But then there's the water element that like suggests that someone was like, well, this could still be naturally beautiful. And it makes it even creepier to me. And that's a real, that's the Thames Mead estate. It's like a real place. And that's why, again, it's like, oh God, he, you know, he built these sets. It's like, no, look at this movie. This is the opposite of all of those ideas. The four sets, by the way, he mentions that he built. Did you guys? Yeah, it's it, in the dossier. All right, well, then I won't read it. Good. Um, because we'll I, get there when we get there. We'll get there when we get there. But no, just the, like that movement at the time, right, is like, well, we can, we can plan for everything. Like we can build the perfect tower block. Ben's just smirking at me. Thought of a good joke. Oh, because yeah. uh, you have a dossier, and Alex brought his own dossier, sure. so it's a dossier kind of going on right now. <laughs> a dosi dossier. Dosi dossier. There's something very funny to me 
about the idea of building these estates and being like problem solved. Right. You've got your water, houses over there, here's a nice walkway. I everything Just you might want. Just try and complain about this. Exactly. Yeah. Formula, you know, boxes checked and you look at it and you're like, "Well, this is kind of like chilling." <laughs> like, yeah. That's I'm a literalization sort of, like, of what I love right. about all these films. Like it's chilling to Kubrick to think that yes. people were like, "Well, we made the bomb." We have a system to control it. Mm. Problem solved. Right. Yeah. Nothing could go wrong. Yeah. Right. And it's chilling for him to be like, well, we built the spaceships and we have a computer running them. Problem solved. And, and the Ludovico technique is the best version of that, where it's like, it feels like something a kid would come up with. It's like, well, what if you just made, like, punch someone in the stomach anytime they saw boobs? And then eventually, anytime they saw boobs in real life, they would double over. And then he's, and then he's like, like, it feels like the logic of a five. But what's yes. incredible is then his, his whole thing of the fallibility of man is, well, what, like, what shoes are you wearing when you're punching him? Well, what happens if he sees someone with those shoes on again? Right. I, I don't know. I guess he'd go insane. I guess he wouldn't like that. Yeah, sure. Well, have you thought about that? No, not really. And that's what he finds so frustrating, I think, about the flaws of man as an as a organism that is just so irresistible as he revisits it in 10 different genres across his career is that it's always the same thing. It's just him looking at the behavior of man and going, these fucking animals can't figure it out. Everything they do is going to lead to their ruin. And I'm the only person who sees this clearly. And I love that about him. Have you ever seen uh, Stanley Kubrick's boxes? No, but you guys are doing the episode on Color Me Kubrick, David said, right? I did not <laughs> say that. I'll watch that. I, rem- I was trying to remember last night, what was Stanley Kubrick's boxes? Like a documentary about his treasure chest or something? <laughs> it's like a documentary short that I think John Ronson did. It was like, um, you know, uh, Julio's favorite shapes. It's just Stanley Kubrick being like, this is a great box right here. It's like a conveyor belt. It's like, around, it, it, it's like Orson Welles' sketchbook where he weirdly had like a six-episode TV show where he just drew pictures and talked about them. Sounds fun. Cooper had this TV <laughs> show. Sounds like good vibes. Open yeah. a magic correct, box. It was John Ronson. Yeah. Yes. Open a box. It was like going through his like archives right. after he died. All his memorabilia. Right. Uh, and and all the, the things prepared for Napoleon. Is that watchable? Because it sounds... Like, it could be boring just him being like, ah, oh, and here's some pictures. You know, like, it could, you know, like, you gotta dramatize. You're saying it's like Geraldo's tomb. Well, the there worst... was, he found nothing. So right. But there's his Geraldo. All right, guys, we're going, empty box. going to open Kubrick's box. So it turns out there's nothing inside. I remember it being semi watchable, but the way I found out about it at first, I don't know why I end up on this website, but uh, the company who made his physical boxes. Okay. Uh, was so proud of their mention in the documentary. Sure, I mean, hey. That they posted a clip on their website. Why were you on a box company's website? This is my question. I'm like, how did I end up there? You box shopping. But I was like, oh, there's a documentary box, about his Previously, the products. boxes were, were only used for shipping nails. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. But he talked... It's one to, of my favorite Simpsons. I mean, just the... The, the box factory in the Simpsons. The density of that. great... Seven uh, minutes. We only make boxes for shipping nails. That <laughs> every product that needs to be shipped has its own box factory. People should know that like 25% of being friends with Alex is receiving Simpsons quotes or gifts via text. And then the next time you see him in person going, why didn't you give me credit for that? Saving, like, where was I think my David uh-huh. gets a lot more of those than, 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 than maybe you do because he's a more reliable responder. But I do love a good Simpsons reference. But the box factory... 
yes. Box Factory is just great. So you're just you're just online checking out some box. Well, I, mean, I don't know the, why the, I'm on the, this fucking the website. final button of the guy of you know what is it the Simpsons like the line of like well you could be end up being like a schmo working in a box factory and he's I in the that. other building. He's like I heard that. <laughs> it kills me. What were you? You were I don't on remember the, why I'm on. Boxes. I don't remember why, but this clip right. The guy is talking about. And I was just like, oh, is the documentary literally this? And it's like, no, it's mostly about the contents of the boxes. But there is this section where they talk about the boxes themselves, right? And this guy is like, "Uh, Stanley came to us with a very... uh, Specific uh, demands. We, we made him hundreds of boxes before he agreed. David, yes. truly. <laughs> and he's just like, sometimes. Stanley came to us with a 40 page document. Oh, and boy. the whole thing was just like, he had never found a box that truly satisfied him. And he was like, we went back through so many iterations I sympathize. of. Yeah. And he was just like, look, either the lid is too tight. And when I tug it, it doesn't come off. The whole box gets lifted. Hurts his or it's too loose and it falls off like this. And the guy's talking about just the back and forth to get the exact right snug fit on the lid. And he goes like uh, a monster debating uh, the micron of cod. He uses the term micron of card to get the right thickness. These are very technical box terms. Right, right. Now, like... But these are stuff like this and the presence of this movie I haven't seen. Like, this has done more damage to his reputation than it has than, it, than anything it, else. It, right, it I agree. Hurt. Now, this it is my help. point. Yeah. This is the point I'm trying to make. The takeaway from that is just like, oh, insane, obsessive perfectionist needs to control the entire world around him, this and that, right? My, my current perspective on it is more of the like, what you're saying, Kubrick driven crazy by people who don't think about well, what happens if, right? If I get sure. this, if I get this box, and then there's a leak in my roof, everything inside is going to be ruined, right? More because than your anything, box is faulty. I think Kubrick is someone who like thought so thoroughly about everything. You guys should do a Patreon episode on the box. Get yeah. a box from this company and just kind of well, actually, review that it. Sounds pretty fun. Sit here, unpack I want to the see box. Micron of so cards. It's an unboxing a box yes. video. Yeah. But I feel a like that's two minutes, and then it's sort of like, well, it's a challenge. Wait, Come okay, on. so bonus episodes. Well, we Color can me do Kubrick. it again, but Color slower. Kubrick. Second AI, AI, hyper AI. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Boxes, the documentary. The a- box and unboxing. Yeah, what if we watch, what if we put a DVD of Richard Kelly's The Box into a box? The, the boxing re- the box. Exactly. Boxing. When you finally run out of talking AI the walk, backwards. you can do boxing the box. What if we Not watch... when we run out. It's we're creating a new franchise, the first annual boxing the box. What if we watch AI backwards and call it IA? Well, now we have seven Patreon bonuses for Kubrick. Um, the man me, the man would approve. Let me give you some dossier unless you have... I'm ready wanna, to talk about the movie actual talk. movie of A Clockwork right. okay. Orange. Everything else will come up organically. The only other things I want to... I feel like I should mention from the dossier that are sort of like pre-movie is like... Napoleon is the thing he thinks about for a while post two thousand one. Like that, that. This is a big. This is so soon after two thousand one, though. This is three years. Three years isn't that soon. It's pretty fast by the measure yeah. of. I mean, but, but, but this was, was a big Napoleon, Napoleon disruption, right? I think he was yeah. working also, you know, p- p- uh, plotting Napoleon pre two thousand one. Like it's a long running project. It spanned, for him. spanned a long time. Um, and he's fascinated by Napoleon. It just feels so exciting to be like you just made two thousand and one the most grand, opulent, visionary film that imagines an entire civilization. And a fucking blockbuster. And, and it was and, a hit. Yes, right. and it, it made money succeeded. and people right. loved it and the counterculture embraced it. What do you want to do? I guess I should just make this punk movie about a guy who beats people up and listens to Beethoven and all. it'll be done in two years. And people are like, that sounds fine. What will it be rated? 
X. (laughs) Will people hate it? Actually, it'll be nominated for Best Picture. I have to, I regret it. It's like, okay, I guess to go go knock that one out after two. Wild that A Clockwork Orange was nominated for Best Picture in 2001 wasn't. Yeah. Like, it's it's a better film. Well, that's debatable. I mean, they're, you know, like an 11 out of 10 and a 10 out of 10, but. But yeah, it, that, that is that, that's the wild statistic. I also think it's bizarre that McDowell wasn't nominated. I, I kind of don't know how There's you give no this movie. There's no way to appreciate a performance like this in 71. I guess that's true, but like, I don't know how you give this movie picture and director and not go like, well, obviously this guy at the center. Because, who would, because people were just like, it's he's just some guy. the Kubrick thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, th- I think it's just like, well, they discredit the, the actors. Yeah, they just, just he like, found some guy. If you it's haven't, a puppet. If you yeah. haven't seen If, you're not bringing any context to McDowell it in Hollywood. Also, I mean, it's a fairly loaded year. It's Hackman and French Connection. Good performance. Peter Finch and Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is actually a great performance. Good performance. Um, George C. Scott in the hospital, which is you know, a big George C. Scott. Ah, and what he if was, was like, don't you even fucking nominate me? I'll kill you. Topol in Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> Filled the fuck out of that one. Yeah. And then Walter Matthau in Koch, which is not a movie I've seen. I like how you say this is a loaded Jack- year and then offer three just non-existent movies and performances. The hospital is not non-existent. And George C. Scott is... That movie is non-existent. No, it isn't. And George C. Scott in that movie is like a one billion out of ten Oscar performance. Who directed the hospital? Don't Don't look at Chayefsky wrote it. It's a Chayefsky movie. I'm not saying who wrote the hospital. No, but that's the thing with Chayefsky movies. It's Chayefsky. No, no, no. Yes, it is. Chayefsky is an auteur. Who directed Network? Sydney Lumet. So you knew that one, but it's yeah, called Chayefsky's Network. But Sydney Lumet is like uh, you don't know who directed the hospital, do you? Arthur Hiller. Oh, that was giving my fucking guess. Well, I wish I had the courage to say that. Out. This doesn't exist. That is, if that bullshit. movie played tomorrow at Walter Reed, there would be six people there. Well, wait, that's not a good measurement of anything. At this point, fifty years wait, hence, no, no, no. Oscar movie's... voting fifty years ago should not be measured by what. I'm not saying it didn't exist. Twitter at... rascals I'm... show up to in 2022. I'm not saying it didn't exist at the time. I'm <laughs> saying the cultural legacy of that. I'm saying on the at room. the time. It I'm existed. talking. I'm saying now. You can't hold <laughs> now, this up. If we redid the Oscars, they, yes, they would be different. Got to get McDowell in there. Walter Matthau and Koch to me is the soft one there, but it's Walter Matthau. Yeah, I also He's... bet if I saw Koch, it would fucking rip. It's probably it pretty good. It's probably roll. among the top five best Walter Matthau performances, but this is this but is he, the performance. This is, here's my point more on this, and then we can move on. Like, Clockwork Orange, that's, it's, it's French Connection, Fiddler on the Roof, Last Picture Show, Nicholas and Alexandra is kind of the forgotten movie of those five best picture nominees, but those are three, you know, heavyweights. Then yeah. you look at the fucking 2001 year, that garbage. Do you want to? You want to hear about this? Yeah. We probably already debated. Well, so two thousand one. It. It's what? It's a beautiful mind. Fellowship of the Ring. No, listen to this. It's okay. And these are none of these are bad movies, in my opinion. <laughs> but it's it's Oliver, Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, and Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, no, that's a shitty year. Yeah, it's like one of those things where you like you couldn't squeeze two thousand and one in here. Like, right. what the hell is going on? And then. Three years later, they're like Clockwork Orange, and people are like, "Is this movie too violent to exist?" And the Oscars are like, "Eh, best picture, <laughs> picture director, yeah, throw it in there." Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just saying, it's, a great, it's, it, it's just a stunning pivot. It and may then, also be partly just 2001's legacy. Yeah, sure. They were like, "Well, fuck." You know. That's the other thing. I mean, you talk about like 2001 getting reclaimed by the counterculture and whatever. That right. movie just lasted. Reclaimed, just claimed immediately. That's what I'm saying. But it just the tail on it was so immediate and so yeah, long. Right. Yeah. Whereas this is, just, and then it's like, well, you made the best picture nominated X-rated band film with all this. Right. What do you want to do? It's like, I guess I'll have to make a movie by candlelight. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
so I'm gonna. I have, I'm afraid make a I have movie no about choice. Tricorner hat, motherfucker. But to make a three-hour movie about just like a foolish loser who scams his way into upper crust society, and it'll all be lit by candles. And they're like, best picture. They're like, yeah, great, go for it. That sounds like a reasonable, you know, rebound <laughs> from this from this violent movie. Um, don't talk shit about Barry. That's my boy. We're, look, we're getting there, but oh. Ben reacted very strongly to Barry. He turned to me like ten minutes in and went, I'm "Very excited for this. Those are my people on yeah. screen." You mean Irish liars? <laughs> Keep Barry's name out your mouth, David. Don't you dare. He's an Irish liar. I love the guy. So is Ben. Sometimes we love the I know. All right? It's not easy out there. Meanwhile, Ben. Judgment free zone. should mention that Ben only has one leg now for, for reasons unknown. <laughs> peg, peg leg Ben. It's peg a leg ben. Now look, I'll just say about Napoleon, there's a lot that JJ's putting the dossier here, but it's just too much. You're like, talking about Kerry Fukunaga's Napoleon, right? A movie that will definitely be. Yeah, yeah that one's definitely. I'm sorry, Griffin, a miniseries. Anytime Kubrick talks about it in interviews, you're like, well, of course this never happened. Because he's like, so I've read 700 books. We're hoping to stage some of the battles like in the actual locations. And I'm just like, even you at the top of post-2001 with MGM being like, we'll write the check. It does sound impossible what he it's wants also to just, do. It's crazy that he, he made it that complicated because what, like Jared Hess was able to make it for like, what, $200,000? <laughs> and it was dynamite. It was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He threw some sticks of dynamite in there. Dynamite. You know, like, listen to this quote. We intend to use a maximum of 40,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry for the big battles. So we're going to need to find a country that's going to hire out its own armed forces. He's just, looking at, he's just looking at Bondarchuk's War and Peace, right? He's just looking at that and being like, I could do this. And, and like, yeah. right? Course, I mean, that, what that, studios are looking at is When like, was that movie? When was War and Peace? Was, early, was, was that 60? Yeah, it's in the 60s. Right, it has to be. I think it's late 60s. Uh, 67. So yeah. he, he saw that and but, was like, God, that'd be fun. But that's the whole thing. Where studios are looking at movies like that and like Waterloo, those sort of like late 60s, you know, where, and they're like, these things are less and less sexy and so expensive. Like, right. we can't underwrite And anymore. he's like, if I could just find a country. I just, it's really, he's like calling me Gary and he's like, hey, do you have like 10,000 cavalry? <laughs> are they for high? I will bring the costumes. Don't worry. But I just need them all to show up in the same place at the same time. Uh, some of the countries they reached out to, France, Italy, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Romania. How do you call an entire country? I don't know. But that's Look up the prime minister in the yellow pages. Okay. Th this war and peace movie was like produced by Russia. Right. Because Russia was like, we should have it's a fucking big epic. Right. And they were like, we'll so just make a 10-hour like movie that's literally every page of War and Peace, and we will put a 5,000-person army in front of the camera. But like, that's what he was jealous of, was he was like, why can't I get that kind of support? Bob Gaffney like, has this quote where he was like, it was all figured out. We were going to need 200,000 gallons of blood. Like, things like that had been itemized. Like, for us to stage all these battles, we're going to need this many horses, this many, you know, like, so... And then just there's a certain point at which MGM is like, we're not fucking doing this. Jack Nicholson was going to play Napoleon, obviously. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's the funniest <laughs> thing about <laughs> He's like, all that meticulous play. He's like, who do you want for Napoleon? I don't know. Jack's pretty good, right? He's kind of like short and angry. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. He's got kind of that energy. Jack Nicholson does not scream France to me. Like, his face does not. Hold on. Let me get this hand out of my tummy pocket. Hey, Josephine. <laughs> what say you and I skedaddle uh, this Waterloo thing I'm never gonna get over it uh, and he even as he starts work on, on Clockwork Orange he even like said to Anthony Burgess like hey do you want like to take a swing at Napoleon like you know like while he's working on this movie yeah 
So, like, he can't fucking stop talking about Napoleon the whole no, time. No, and then Burgess's next book's about Napoleon. Um, yes, it's called Napoleon Symphony, a novel in four movement. Yeah. Um, I like that there's these books like Terry Southern's Blue Movie where people are like, I worked with Kubrick. I should just write a book about what it was like to work with that guy, and it'll be a novel. Are you guys doing a Blue Movie episode? Yeah, no. we're adding that as another bonus. Yeah, that, can, can I give a second on context? On be a Wednesday you, no, no one responded like they knew what I was talking about. Go on. Terry Southern wrote Doctor Strange Love. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and he worked on uh Lolita and he worked right? He worked yeah, on he a worked bunch on of that. Yeah. It, whatever. It's not interesting in the book. I just read it. I, I just read it recently. It's not but he basically had a conversation at one point with Kubrick that is a kernel of eyes wide shut. Why can't they make an erotic film that looks like an a that looks like a film? Why yeah. do these films Why can't we make pornography that is right, like produced in the way of a Obviously Kubrick does that, you know. 30 years later, in some ways, Terry Southern writes a novel about a filmmaker trying to make a movie that is a pornography film that is a film. And it's fine. Yeah. Um, but it's another thing where someone's like, you know, Kubrick said something to me. I think I've got a novel in what that guy was thinking about. I was reading that when Burgess adapted the Clockwork Orange as a play with music, mm -hmm. there was a point where a Stanley Kubrick character came on singing, singing in the rain. Sure. Get an actor dressed like Stanley Kubrick with sure. an umbrella, like singing, singing in the rain, and they beat the shit out of him on stage. Sounds fun. Like, it is funny that all these, whenever he adapted someone's work, they sort of were like simultaneously enraged and obsessed with him in the way. Have you guys read A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess? I, well, I just reread it. School. I reread it just a few weeks ago. In fact, my copy's right here next to Ben, who requested to borrow it. Ben asked for someone to bring a copy. Ben, you're borrowing it. You're planning on reading it. No, I've read it you before. Read it. Many you guys times. read it in high school. Yep. I, read I read it in it high school, too. At it's the short. time. Yeah, it took it me short. just a few days just now to reread. It's and shockingly my, similar. My Penguin Classics had a had a, a glass of milk on the cover, and I thought that was so cool. Dude, we well, were just talking about this. There's so many fucking cover designs yeah. for it's this like book. A, you know, it's a cool book. Um, I have this canvas right. bag. Sure. Um, that's like the really famous, oh, yeah. like, 70s kind of like yeah. bright colors, uh, the cartoon uh, of Alex. I, I, yeah. I reread it for this. It's much like 2001, which is obviously kind of written concurrently as a book and a screenplay, but it's just, it is so similar to the movie. To the point that as much as I know this movie backwards and forwards, reading the book, it was just like just listening to reading the script or just listening to the movie with my eyes closed. It is so similar. The dialogue is, it's just unbelievable how little he changed, which right. makes, and again, this is an important thing about Kubrick also, which I guess kind of now in the miniseries is a great time to, you know, talk about it briefly. But like, he's, su the key, he's such an adapter. Right, mm -hmm. none of his nothing he did was an original. No, he would be I mean, maybe by Killer's Kiss some book or some usually a maybe book, the first. But, yeah. I don't. I forget if Killer's Kiss has yeah, any source material, but you know, from from the Killing On. Yes. Yeah, he's he's an adapter, and, and therefore the sort of the grand, most original, visionary filmmaker of the second half of the twentieth century. All of his ideas, he finds ideas, and then he creates this visual version of them, which makes the things he changes really interesting. Right, because that's where you really see like. So he added the snake. That's interesting. There's no snake in the book. What's up with that? And the things he changed just become, they really stand out when you know the movie well and you reread the book or read it because it's like, huh, so that's the thing. He felt the need to, he, okay, so that scene he didn't feel was necessary. Because mm. mm. there's only like two or three scenes in the book that aren't in the movie. Right. The book is really, really simple. Including the final chapter? Well, the well, final the chapter, final we'll get there. its own thing. Yeah, we'll right. have to get there when we chronologically. We can get there now. I mean, well, we can't get there no, now. No, we can't get the there end of the now. Movie. I refuse. So Anthony Burgess wrote that book. There's a lot of sort of legends of Anthony Burgess, like 
was supposedly told he was dying and wrote like five books in a year. And he uh-huh. says he wrote that book practically in a weekend or whatever. Who told him he was dying? A, a doctor. But this is, a, JJ makes oh, it clear. Black. It's kind of alleged. It's disputed by some biographers. Okay. And they say like, eh, he kind of had us. He, he would tell tall tales and it's hard to tell if this is true. Blah, 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 blah. He writes the book. But, you know, the Rolling Stones were the original people who wanted to make yes. this book, right? Mick Jagger like, wanted to play Alex. Or right. Drugs themselves. Exactly. Maybe five at the time. Uh, Ken Russell, who's very logical yep. at yeah. the time, was planning on making this into it. So it's it's a known cinematic quantity, right? When mm-hmm. Kubrick's getting it. It's not like some of these things, I feel like. They were like, if we can't get Lord of the Rings, we'll do this. Or was that the Beatles that wanted to make Lord of the Rings? The Beatles, Beatles wants to make Lord of the Rings. But, but I feel like there's some other thing the Rolling Stones wanted right, to... But the Rolling Stones were always like, let's make this a movie. There was some other fantasy thing, whatever. Maybe I'm just conflating it, but... Yeah, who knows? Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know I what? think Rod Stewart was going to make Aragon, right? Yes. As uh, Faces were going to... Go on, finish that thought. Yeah, what other 70s rockers and... and, and Aragon. Yeah, who was going... Yeah, the, uh, the, the birds were going to make Water Horse Legend of the Deep. <laughs> uh, as you say... You, <laughs> Kubrick reads the book. <laughs> All right. Kubrick reads the book. That was my kind of joke. <laughs> Throw some points. Yeah, flip you some points. Ping. Um, Kubrick reads the book and is like, I didn't have to do much. Like, it's he did all... very little. He did very little. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, the book has in it's in Britain that the book has a a twenty first chapter. Yes. That is a happy ending. The book has. Three sections of twenty of seven chapters apiece. Right. If you read it at the time, it would have been uh, two at seven and then one at six. Right. And Burgess has said there's supposed to be 21 chapters. It's supposed to reference like 21 being pivotal, developmental, maturity. mature. And yeah. it had, I put but on, in I, America, it was 20. But it had a happy right. ending. And the American publisher was like, that was, a pal, NTSC, that was a pal NTSC joke, by the way. But <laughs> oh, there, no you go. there you go. Uh, <laughs> and they tossed the final chapter. And Kubrick wrote it without the final chapter and just like, well, that's the book. And he calls it the extra chapter. He was like, wow, this book ends with the absolute catastrophic events of what happens when man tries to control right. anything. Right. Perfect ending. And Anthony and- Burgess is like, excuse me, I wrote another chapter. And Kubrick's like, talk to the hand. Kubrick was essentially like... He actually invented the phrase, yeah, talk to the hand. And, and Anthony Burgess is like, huh? And he was like, because the fanny's face ain't listening. Yeah, he was like, if I had read this before, <laughs> I, sw- <laughs> I, I... I expect a flurry of... Kubrick memes of the talk to the hand because the face ain't Absolutely. listening as subtitled dialogue. Jack and the bartender and the shining Absolutely. the monkeys at the beginning of 2001. Hal and David playing chess. Talk to the hand. Hal and Sims playing chess. Um, um, and uh, The extra chapter is fascinating. We'll talk about it at the oh, end. But Kubrick sure. was basically like, I didn't know this existed. And at the time they brought it to me, it I was almost done adapting it. And I went, if I had known this had existed, I would have ignored it anyway. He's fascinated by the syntax of the book, right? This, this sort of invented language that's in it. He's um, fascinated by the language. He says there's been very little experimentation with the form of film stories, except in avant-garde cinema, where unfortunately there's too little technique and expertise present to show very much. That's the avant-garde cinema found dead in a ditch. Staying practically <laughs> pissed on by <laughs> Stanley Kubrick. Jumping off the Empire State Building. Well, of course, you know, filming it probably. You mentioned Warhol, but of course, there's the unwatchable Warhol version of this book. There, I've never seen it. It's, it's unwatchable. Vinyl? Is that what it's, it's called, called? Vinyl. Not to be confused. I didn't know that existed. Well, yeah. it's, it's R.I.P. Like, with it's, the. I think it's lightly inspired. I think yeah. it's literally. We talk about movies that don't exist. Andy David Zaslav is really raising the stakes in terms of actually unexisting movies. It, it, he's coming for the hospital next. <laughs> 
I, th I, I think the Warhol vinyl, which I just saw as a Clockwork Orange nut, is just, I think it's literally two shots of, you know, like 25 minutes in duration. I, I might be misremembering the syntax of it, but it's like all Warhol movies unwatchable. Uh -huh. And just, you know, a kind of semiotic exercise. And like, what if a gang of people did violence? It's just that. Yeah. Basically, there might be some lifts more from the book, but it's, it's, I mean, you'll do the, you'll do it on Patreon, obviously. Yeah, that's that. another episode. Commentary on Warhol's vinyl. But it's it's an interesting adaptation. But again, it just shows that he he was omnivorous in his taste and his consumption, and anything for him was valid as material as a potential next project. He had no he did not really discuss with Burgess before he adapted it. So the rare solo writing credit. It is the rare written and directed by yeah, much like yeah. AI later for Spielberg. This is the rare mm -hmm. solo writing and producing solo producing credit. Um, that yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. He did it all on this one, which again is part of the legend, but the wrong part of the legend. And he cast Malcolm McDowell like without auditioning, essentially, right? Yeah. Just kind of like off. Well, you of see if, right. and you're like, that, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's right. he's the guy. Uh, and he just calls him up and is like, "How would you play this character?" And Malcolm McDowell was like, "Oh, okay." And like, that was it. Like, it was there was the contract was sent over. Like, he's basically. one of those guys. I mean, we we're talking about this in the Nicholson. Shining discussion, which will be coming in in future weeks, but like at at his best, and to circle back to opening conversation, like he is in that weird Eric Roberts zone where it's like he does so much schlock, where you just go like, well, knock me out, whatever, and then every once in a while he'll show up and you'll be like, oh right, he does still like have his fastball when he wants to, like when he shows up in a real thing and actually wants to give a performance, like what. I don't think he's ever lazy or phones it in. It's like he rises to the material of what he's given. It's wild that he's fucking uh, Dr. Uh, Lomas. Yeah, in the remakes. Yeah. He's good in those. Yeah. I like him in those. He's a a valid uh, inheritor of the Donald Pleasance mantle. Absolutely. Same kind of thing of like, oh, this guy kind of has gravitas he to totally, spare, but, but he's you would also not a schlock think guy. Alex right. DeLarge ages into that. I also think it's yeah. a bad movie, but I think he's like one of the better parts of Bombshell. I think his Murdoch is like weirdly good. Okay. He's good in Bombshell. Sure. I mean, that movie eats that blood. That movie sucks. Yeah. yeah. But like the weird thing is like him popping up in like In Good Company. He sure. does stuff like that where it's like, and who's going to play the wacky boss? Kind of the Murdoch, you know? Right. Oh, right. And then he'd be like, oh, oh Jensen. You're like, oh, here's McDowell. He Kind of feels like this guy could kill you. He's you just know, like such he's such an electrifying performer in this movie yes. and in If and in oh, Lucky Man, of course. But like, but under, he's if one if of those guys so who can go very big without really feeling like he's overacting. I mean, this is the thing we we're talking about with Nicholson, but it's just like they seem to just have such energy and vitality that it doesn't feel like they're reaching out of their temperament or like pushing for something. Not at all, and that's why when people say. Oh, he just, if he could have not had actors and had robots, he would have been happy. It's like, look at who he wants. He wants right. these people that are like electrifyingly alive as performers that like vibrate as uh, in front yeah. of the camera. And he just loves that because he can control everything, but he knows he can't do that. He can't, and he doesn't want to. He wants to let these people do the work perhaps many, many times, but he wants to let these, these live wires just spark in front of the camera. And you look at this performance. Yeah. And what he plays off of with all these other people, and there's so much to say about the totally insane supporting cast of this movie and these wonderful British actors. But he's just bouncing off of these people, which is, again, that's the text of the movie. It's this guy, this character, up against these older, 
establishment fuddy-duddy types. It's him and Mr. Deltoid, and it's him and the prison uh, governor, and it's just these stiff upper lip Brits, and then there's just this agent of chaos smashing against them. And to, to Kubrick, that's like, what's better than just watching chaos smash against order? This is it. This is what it's about. This yeah. is what my entire life is about exploring. Kubrick also says he thinks the audience identifies with Alex on some unconscious level, right? I, like, we perhaps know. have the same. I have a whole, yeah, there's a whole thing here. I want to just to, the sympathy of Alex question right. as it exists for, you know, 50 plus years now. He, he compares him to Richard III, the Shakespeare character, where he's like, this is Heard this, of him. this grand monster in the play, obviously, but like, we are somewhat sympathetic to him, uh-huh. partly because it's just the pathos and drama of this man. Well, like, because Spacey played him so well. Oh, God. Ugh. Jesus Christ. Am I really related to him as like a young man? I mean, an aggressive, angry young man. This is like the movie. And if you're He's pretty bad, though. if you're bad coloring guy. within He's the a bad guy, if you're coloring He's within the rules stuff. of really society, bad. like we're taught to, and you get to watch a character who forsakes all of that. Yeah. For me, it's like, I can enjoy that sense of rebellion through the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go out with my droogs and get my weapons. I can just watch this and be like, chaos is very appealing. I've gotten sure. my fill of it in, on the couch. Right, right. The argument for so many a thing, like a video game or whatever. Right. Of like, yeah, but you're like, getting your... To Ben's point, like, yeah, you know... channeling something. I sort of feel like, and this is something I think is more or less under, under-discussed for this movie... Like to me, as as we're flipping a page, yeah. On well, the you know, we're into the movie pages now. So, you know, the, the, the document's moving. It's moving. We're in, we're we're over half. We're you know, we're in the we're in the back half of the sure, document, sure. but still the first half of the show. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that's not true. This movie, I think, and this was a huge inspiration in, in in when I was writing her smell. Like this movie, to me, has five very clear acts of the film. Five that acts makes, that are that sounds right. Radically delineated. Okay, through the acts. So in first terms act is- of. Alex How Alex no acts, right. what the camera is doing in relation to him, mm-hmm. and the style of storytelling. I think it just changes. If, you know, give me the five acts. Well, the first act is up through when he goes home, so it's right. sort of like an opening, you know, uh, an overture oh, of. And this is when this is the only time of the movie that he's actually inherently evil. Yes, he's mm. just committing. This is the only acts and of this violence. Is Twenty minutes, twenty yeah. minutes or so, and if you're talking about like his behavior as a character. It's just the opening night. It's the first night of the story because everything up until his imprisonment is two days. So the first two acts are day one and day two. It's him with the milk bar up through coming home. And then the next part starts when he's at home and then, you know, the morning with Mr. Deltoid. So by that point, the camera has settled and his home life, even though his parents are out, is so static and so normal right. Right. that the chaos and the, and the anarchy that we've been watching for the first act at this point, it's just you. You see the the dichotomy here. He doesn't live in a in a gutter. He has a bedroom with a made bed, yeah, no, with true. with belongings and stuff that he keeps. That he has. He he's he's materialistic in a way that a a real anarchist or punk would not be. And that is this wonderful contradiction that Kubrick clearly is fascinated. Well, by. yeah, and like one of the weirdest parts is when he silences the other droog for making fun of the classical music, and you're like, dude, you were. You know, you, you can't walk in here being all high and mighty about how to behave with these guys. You know, like, he's like, "You're quiet," and you're like, "Well, you know, you guys all have been beating up you homeless people." Might want to think about getting, getting a cane to hit Griffin with when That'd certain so bits. I just, you're telling, you've been pushing me for weeks to come in. Fine, you, can heavy, you can hit me. You can hit me. Telling him the, the thing is, I'm not always. Thing. I'm not always here. 
Um, if David wants to crack the cane when when something is not to his liking in the way of interrupting Ode to Joy, right? I I'm just saying Alex precedent. shows that it can be done. Sure. But that's like, okay, so again, we're bad, let's talk about the movie. Uh, the movie hasn't even begun yet, and the music is just already wailing. So and it's already a 10 out of 10, the electronic score. It's just, it's just undeniable. It's incredible that Wendy, this is how Wendy, he starts this movie. It's Wendy Carlos, right? Again? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Who yeah. I was or, like, or, well, not again. What a prolific. Of one of the most prolific and important composers. And I looked up the Wendy Carlos discography and it's like uh, Clockwork Orange, Tron, The Shining, and that's it. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. So I only consider... Right, it's but just like, like she three. knocks it out of the park three times in a row. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, wow, you know, really an early electronic music composing pioneer. And then I looked, I was like, there must be so many movies. I'm not even... Right, you're like, I forgot she scored Best Defense. <laughs> yeah. It's but like, it's like, no, it's just three. Right. It's not minutes. like, oh yeah, there's 45 Tangerine Dream scores I've never heard. Right. But they're still the best whoever did it. It's like, yeah. no, there's really just the three movies. And each one is like indelibly iconic, yeah. even though some, you know, Shining has very little music. But just before it even begins, the first shot, I mean, what an iconic... It's just, you're already in masterpiece territory here. Like, just the positioning of his hat, like, and how it's, like, lining up with, like, his eye. Again, it's just old and new. It's this future past, this, like, liminal space in between times where they're dressed in a very dystopian, bizarre way, but with these kind of hats that by the 70s were not in fashion, even ironically. And the way he's talking is not in fashion in any way. Like, he has this, like, very old-fashioned way of talking. I mean, and, uh, and vaguely invented way of vaguely talking. Invented. There's, there's a good quote. But you, like, do, you, do you have the, the quote on the Zoom shot? Uh, I feel like a lot of what JJ me. pulled maybe from the same line. No, 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 hit me, hit me, go on. I don't so know. There, no, again, it, oh, Kubrick, everything's a perfectionist. He, you know, can't leave anything to chance. Well, this is nonsense. Here's the, here's the interviewer saying, how do you prepare this opening Zoom shot? There was no special preparation. I find that, with very few exceptions. It's important to save your cinematic ideas until you have rehearsed the scene in the actual place you're going to film it. No matter how carefully you have pre-planned a scene, when you actually come to the time of shooting and you have the actors on the set, having learned their lines, dressed in the right clothes, you have the benefit of knowing what you have already got on film, there's usually some adjustment that has to be made to the scene in order to achieve the best result. And I just love that he's not like, I know what I want before I get there and the execution is just about getting it. And I love that his answer is like, Look, you show up, you look at the set, you look at the clothes. Sometimes you have to, you have to. It's a fundamental misunderstanding that I feel like we keep on going back. And to this is one of the four like, built sets. We should, he, as we'll doing, call them out. The, the milk bar is one of four. Well, and the fiberglass furniture, yes. the naked women is it's such specific, like an invented. Like, they yeah. didn't find yeah. those; they made those. But, but the doing a hundred takes thing is so much more about finding the thing he couldn't think of that can only happen in the moment than it is about waiting for them to perfect the thing he has in his head. There's a lot of improvisation in the film. The singing in the rain thing is a Malcolm McDowell idea. Is that that confirmable? Yes. Do you want me to read through the No, no, I know that this is a matter of public record via McDowell. Right. I never, I didn't find an interview where Kubrick says that. No, because he doesn't give a lot of interviews. But he he has this long interview here at the time. That would require looking at the script because because it comes back. The the reason that I doubt this is two things. One, McDowell loves to tell tall tales. Mm -hmm. And I think over his 50 years of telling stories, he may have invented a few details. Two, this is one of the biggest changes of the book is that there's no singing in the rain in the book. So when Alex is identified by the writer, he's identified because, you know, it's like Columbo shit. He's just like, I thought you didn't have a phone. And the guy's like, why would you think we don't have a phone? It's all stuff like that. Mm. So the fact that one of the biggest changes to the book hinges upon this song makes me feel like 
how could that have been spontaneous in the filming? Because that is now the way that the fulcrum of the identification of Alex is handled in the end of the movie. It also could have been not spontaneous mid-take. That's what I that's what I wanted clarity on, and I couldn't something find. created, suggested by McDowell. McDowell says created but, mid-take. I mean, I can read I, you the quote. I believe that McDowell what, says that. I know, I know. I'm just it's what I've got for you, which is basically that they had the script, but as you say, Griff, they would do the mm -hmm. script and then they would be like, let's do other things, yeah. right? Try and find other things. You know, he says, like, for example, the sequence in the writer's house, the script called for everything that we do. Breaking the windows, like the throwing the bottles. Did that any was all pipes come through the windows or what did they break them with? Yeah, how else could you break a window? Bottles. And uh, during uh, that sequence, Stanley says to him, can you dance? And he said, of course. And so I began to sing a singing in the rain and Stanley burst out laughing. It was the first time in a week that something had happened. He went to Bournemouth studio, telephone New York and purchased the rights to the music immediately. So his telling is certainly. So I, this story is great. If, if true, this really shows that Kubrick is much more elastic than anybody yes. has ever wanted to give him credit and for. And here you go. The, to complete the quote, in a, it's a great moment. I have to tell you that when we were filming the next scene in the shooting script, the retribution scene, it was Stanley's idea to have me hum the same tune while I'm in my bath. So they threw out what was written. That suggests that this was all, you know, spontaneous. Because in, in the book, it, it's so in much the book, it would be, and In shittier. the book, it would be yeah. when he's downstairs having been brought in that he's then revealing things he already knows about this house. So that would mean, if true, which I believe it could be, just there's, I couldn't really, you know, you have to only take McDowell's word for it unless you see like the shooting script. That would mean that Kubrick then threw out entire pages of adaptation awesome. in, in favor of a spontaneous idea, which could be true or could not be. But if it's true, it's really interesting and the kind of thing people assume he would never in a million, yes. people yeah, assume yeah, right, right, right. that he would have McDowell it, shot on the spot for, for daring to go off script. The part for me that, that I just remain surprised by is that they were given the rights of the song. Sure. I it mean, maybe it was just like, like, hi, this is Stanley Kubrick. And they're like, oh. Yeah. You know, and like, it's like, I need the song. No further. Especially they were like, wow, 2001 was great. Right. I can only imagine <laughs> what, what magisterial and gentle film you're just making. Especially now. when they play right. the Gene Kelly version over the end credits. I'm just like, he must have been so outraged. Uh, Kelly must possible. have been maybe like, not. Maybe Kelly was like, arr, 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 arr. I don't know. Like <laughs> famously droop, invented, droop, yeah, droop. Famous, he, he famously invented that as much as Kubrick invented "Talk to the Hand." Right, Arsenio yeah. ripped him off. You remember in, in "Invitation to the Dance" where Gene Kelly does the Arsenio whoop <laughs> silently and, and um, invents a new form of expression. And yeah, there's also there's a lot of other McDowell quotes about how difficult things could be. The dunk, 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 being dunked in the water, he got like pneumonia. He says mm -hmm. he flipped out. I mean, it. his head is underwater for. Over 60 it seconds. Seems horrible. And he yeah. said he flipped out at Kubrick at one point, you know, because he's like freezing. Well, we'll get to wet. the water. I have big thoughts on the water. On the water. I'm, we're, I'm at the water now. No, well, we're in Act One. We're not yet at the water. I'm we got to back up. I'm we got to slow down and back up. The most. In, I arrange my nose chronologically. That's great. I, the Mc, McDowell's <laughs> thing here that is interesting to me, and I do think McDowell is a bit of a mythologizer. So you do have to take that with a grain of yeah. salt. But, like, is that he says, I did flip out at him in that moment, right? Like, we had a confrontation over it. And then after that, Kubrick just kind of, you know, walked away and things resumed. And he was like, he was not a, con he didn't like confrontation. So it would just kind of be forgotten. But it's, he says, like, it was never quite the same after that. Like, that there was tension that was just not really spoken. Of. I mean, that's the funny thing is, like, obviously, he's a withdrawn in uh, introvert as a fellow. 
he's not a recluse. He's not a weirdo. He's not a germaphobe. No, but he's just shy. Yes, but what I love about him, and we'll awkward. start getting to this like as we move forward a little bit now, is this this bizarre notion that he's humorless. That he's whereas well, he's like not humorless. No. no, not at all. But anyone who knows anything knows that. But this has become one of these myths that gets That's repeated. Fine. But I feel like we need to move on from the we're we're just dispelling the myths of Kubrick because we're oh, getting too well, boxed two down more in pages of via the film Clockwork Orange and the right. various scenes within it. Okay, so tell me about some scenes in a Clockwork Orange. Let's talk about the milk bar. Ben's in the bathroom. Well, the the just like I mean again, like there's really nothing to this opening act except for a repeated series of attacks and sexual assaults. Yes. Done in the name of fun, right. and done basically with a smirk on your face yeah, that, that culminates with the the singing in the rain scene. Like the, so, then Act Two begins when he goes home, and it's dawn, and he's walking up the sort of housing flats and the concrete hellscape. Then he goes in, and you know the lobby is a wreck. Uh, weirdly, the graffiti on that poster is meant is written in the book. You think that's like this big production design conceit? Oh, of really? Like the in the book, suck it sure. and see, and all the other things written on there. Most of those things are like it's like oh this. In the book, it's described as like, oh, this Greco-Roman image that's they been, you know, the boners. with phalluses drawn on it. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's all written in the book. But th- at that point, Alex is no longer a, a, a villain. He's just a teenager at this point. I can't go to school. I'm liable to miss more school. His corrections officer comes by. At this point, he's just a child with a, with a bedroom. And this is now a totally different version of the character than who he has been in, in the beginning. Right. And, and, this, I, and obviously, Mac- McDowell arguably miscast simply just age-wise. I don't think he's miscast, to be clear. But well, it is, yes, Kubrick acknowledges that we just had to get over that. Well, in the, book he's, in the book, he's 15. He's 15, yes. And, and obviously, he's closer to 18 in the book. Right. Um, which which but, is fine. But then, yeah. you know, like the the sort of, this is where the, the Christ allegory is introduced, which kind of continues to pay off. But again, like, you see Alex with his Christ statues in the room, right? Mm-hmm. And like, this is just such a wonderful little sly nod to the way that like truly evil people really always view themselves as victims. Like he, I, Alex identifies with Christ because he views himself as like a victim of the modern age, as he, right. as he says. Right. He, he Already he's like, I'm just, a, the society has gone to rot. There's no future for me. This is again, a very punk thing. I'm just a victim. Like whatever I do that's bad is because Society has left me no choice. The world has failed me. He's emo in that way, as kids are. He is highly emo. He is. Uh, vindicated. He wants to listen to classical I mean, they, music. And they beat up a homeless guy, and the homeless guy is like, you might as well. It's so shitty around here these days. I, like, that's I, his reaction. I have a friend. Stinking world with no law and order. I have a friend who uh, uh, works uh, with uh, uh, teenagers mostly as like a, a school uh, psychologist. And he always says, I will not name him, but he always says, like, being a teenager should be legally admissible in court as an insanity defense. Sure. Sure. Which I just think about all the time. But he's just like, this is my, like, I have a degree in this. I work with these people all the time. There is just the thing of, like, what chemically is going on in those years in the way your brain is developing and redeveloping. It is just going so fucking out of control. And uh, you can have such strong convictions about what you're doing or feeling at any moment, but they're driven by like such insane adrenaline and everything. Yeah, I just your body, your body is attacking your brain, right? Vice versa, right? For five years, there's something about this character and especially McDowell's performance of him where it's like, and I guess it's the contrast between. I mean, what's interesting about this performance being kind of bifurcated because it's like. So much more of his dialogue is in voiceover than it is in scene, right? 
Yeah, on sort camera. of just issues declarations right. and scenes. On camera, he exists so much as a physical presence. Yes. Yeah. And then he's yet yeah, you're he's hearing got his this voice the whole movie. Inner mind sort right. of sort of. Yeah. Right. And there's something so calm and confident yeah, about funny. his voiceover narration. Well, yeah. at the start, as, as Kubrick says in his thing about the identification that David was reading, he, he feels one of the reasons people identify with him is because he is, uh, quote, completely honest in his first-person narrative, perhaps even painfully so. Yeah. So he just believes that, like, this is truly right. his inner Can thoughts. Can I throw right. a take, though? Yeah. I think he's a jerk. He sucks. You think he's a big jerk? Yeah, I think he's rude. Well, what do you think Mr. Deltoid has to say when he comes around? What do you mean? Well, Mr. Deltoid feels he's a jerk. Well, yeah. I guess I'm with Mr. Deltoid. So you're kind of a deltoid in this scenario. <laughs> I'm sort of if you have got you're a saying pick. you're a big deltoid? <laughs> I got to pick between Alex and Deltoid. Deltoid nasty though. He drink his teeth sucks. juice. But that's I mean that's the kind of That's <laughs> the I don't kind think of he thing. meant to drink the teeth that's juice. That's the kind I don't of thing. Know. It's up to the face. He seems a little gross. He seems though. into it kind of as my read. Okay. Yum yum give me more. That's just like how could anybody be like, "Well, Kubrick was humorless." And it's like he had the guy drink the teeth juice. <laughs> I don't think Stanley Kubrick is. I don't think anyone here thinks that. No that. one here thinks he does. This is I a know, knock I on just, him. Enough. Let's let's stop litigating the you know the jerks. Come on, let's talk about the movie. We are. Think right, about right. the think about like this the static shot of Alex and Deltoid sitting on the bed. Mm -hmm. It's got to be like two two and a half minutes. Yeah, and this true. comes after the the handheld chaos of the singing in the rain. Like at this point, this storytelling approach and the visual language of how Alex is framed is so different. This this sped up sex the threesome. Well, we're not really there. Makes me laugh we're not too. There we'll get there in just there. a second. We'll, okay. We can. I just want the record store just can't not be talked about. Sure. We have to talk about the pickup. That's a real location too. As yes, it's what, the basement of a drugstore. Yeah, that's down the thing. In Chelsea, like that's yeah. another thing where I'm like the aesthetic of this movie is like indescribable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Doesn't he pull out the 2001? Well, it's just, it's just right there in the front. Right. That's yeah. what it is. Right. Which, I remember that? Yeah. Which that you was seen, one of those like you know teenage film. You've facts never that seen I anything knew. like it as yeah. a teen. And also, again, it's like. Oh, he's so serious. Like, and it's just like, but he's kind of like being like, guys, I made that movie. Yeah, You're putting my own soundtrack. Like, yeah, it's like Michael Bay referencing Armageddon in Transformers. It's exactly right. like that. Mm -hmm. This is even cooler than Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But or, yeah, that just, is just that, that right. set. Yeah. And then again, in the book, one of the big changes is that those girls in the book, he drugs them and kind of takes yes. them home unwillingly. Whereas in the, in the movie, it seems to be entirely pure charm. Right. Pure yeah. charm. Yeah. And, and again, like, this is just completely exciting to, like, you know. And but then the it goes. The milk they're drinking has drugs in it, right? They are. I mean, the molecule no, plus. I just think that's not cool. You can't do drugs. Wait, what? What about no drugs? What that about was like my dream to go to a bar and just have choice of drugs. I'm now Drug thinking milk? it's funny if I'm my reaction to this movie is like, well, he's breaking the law. <laughs> this guy should go to jail. You Which can't drink drugs really makes you milk? a Mr. Deltoid. <laughs> milk should be only milk and yeah. no drugs. Yeah. Perhaps no chocolate. Drugs. Yeah. In the book, the detail about the milk is there's three different kinds. Right, you can pick I your... I think he says that in the voiceover at the he beginning. Does, well, I think, does he denote the different types? I don't know if he does. Velocet and... Are we thinking like it's like from an up, a down? Well, and so a... one's got mescaline. Sure. One's got amphetamines, and the other one's just a fucking cocktail of goodness. Ben looks happy. Yeah. Ben looks thrilled. I'll say, this is the most effective anti-drug campaign I've ever seen. You talk about putting drugs in milk. I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah, I don't right. Need to if get you can only drink drugs in milk, you're yeah, like, milk yeah, sucks. straight edge over here, baby. Yeah, straight edge of shit. So you laugh at the uh, at the sped up scene. Uh, I I just think that scene is brilliant. I don't know. There's something about it that um, has, I've never forgotten. I guess the, but, the uh, weird yes, arcs of funny. it, like even sped up, where you can track like 
always focusing on one woman. The other woman sort of feels left out. She goes, she starts to get yeah. dressed. He goes to her, he consoles her, undresses her. Like, the the shifts of their dynamic. I did something about the orgy, just like, or what's it threesome? It's not an orgy, really. Yeah. It's described as an orgy here, but that seems. No. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and also just like, just how disconnected he is from it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'll say another thing. Uh, like, why, watching this movie as a high schooler in a class, right? Yeah. And watching it as a big old virgin. Weird. Like, weird Weird to watch this with a teacher. to me. It has, like, rape in it. Like, yeah. It's very upsetting. And, like, so much in the first 10, 15 right, minutes where you're just like, this feels really weird to be and watching in this environment. dick at one point yeah. when he undresses for the policeman. And his balls. You only see a little ball. You see one ball? <laughs> um, no, I was just going to say, I think as a, a teenager who had not had sure. sex. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, watching right. this scene, I feel like, oh, like this is like the first time I've seen sex in a movie where it's like, because it's all this one static shot, right? Mm -hmm. It's sped up. You mm -hmm. see so much behavior, mm -hmm. but it is just like camera back. Ceiling see, you're wall. seeing a more uh, a less Hollywoodized version of sex. No, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. no, no, no. That's the yes, point I'm yeah, making. Right. It's like it's brightly lit. But there's is... no like gauzy close-ups. There's no like camera panning over the body. So it's even just like it felt like the first time I had seen like oh, there's the awkwardness to like before and after sex where you're just standing fully naked with a person. Not like not all the other weird business yeah, around sure. the, the undressing, sex. all that stuff. Sure. I do right. still think that scene weirdly captures a lot of that better than most movies I've ever seen just by the nature of how it's shot and cut. Also the animalness, animalness, animal, animal, animalistic. Thank you. Nature of sex. Yes. Like they're just going at it. Right. That you're just it's like, not like kissy and like it's like no, and we are when it's sped up like that. You're like doing a bit of the old. This doesn't the old look, in out. He says in a out. bit of the old in out. In out. Too much. Too much. Yeah, he does. And uh, that's one of those English things to me. Even though he's what do you crazy mean? Alex, where like you know he's such a fucking punk rebel. But I'm like the English have spent their entire existence trying to find ways to not to say not say sex yeah. <laughs> you know like rumpy pumpy <laughs> they, just, they just can't handle wink wink the nudge words. nudge say no more say no more no but it, it is it, it, say no more say no more it's a good point Ben because th that's the other thing by like speeding it up like that you the romanticism's gone but it also like doesn't look cool like it just starts to look like two monkeys fucking in a zoo where you're like, what a weird, embarrassing thing we all do. He also seems to have like seven layers of sheets on his bed. He yeah. does take off a lot Which of sheets. Which is another like very fey, dandyish touch to his brutality that makes him a very contradictory and interesting character. His touch fucking rules. The one with like the cones with the on foam, it. like spikes or whatever the fuck. Mm. It, it's so distinctly strange. Yeah. Well, just because he's a dang rebel and it's funny that he has such a well put together bedroom. Yeah. That's part of the, the, the sort of visual and narrative contradiction that the, is in every aspect of him but like my you know the sort of distinction of these, these first two acts of the movie is like you would if the, if you you would never guess that this is what this character's bedroom looks like after yes. they break up Billy Boy and the other guys raping at the other casino you'd be like I'm sure he has a very tasteful series of sheets okay and he's uh, put together Dim would be have a messy room like sure. The other one looks like maybe he could be like kind of like, you know, come from like a, a batter family. The little one, you know, he's just kind of like, meh, meh, you know, whatever. He doesn't have like a specialized room, you know. But to me, Alex, he's so balanced and and uh, and and purposeful in how he moves and he just has grace. So it makes sense to me. I don't know. It makes sense once it happens. Sure. But if you're watching this for the first time, you're just like. 
when they're walking to beat up the bum in the underpass, you're just like, this must be where they live. Sure. They must just like live under the bridge like trolls because these guys are just evil. Right. You, it's hard to imagine them going home to a fairly normal home. To a family in this kind of bizarre... This is, of course, the people... This is a time where Britain is worried about the teens. What, what are they up to that? on this? Yeah, what is he they talking can't be controlled. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. Britain is worried about the teens. Do you have any source for this? Uh, I can actually find a source for you. Okay, guys, going to find some do they social study call, of British teenagers. Do they always call, like, <laughs> the bad people hoodlums in the UK? <laughs> I mean, that's, is that like a popular so term? It's going to end up with us doing homework. Hoodlums yeah. and, uh, you know, hooligans. Hooligans. <laughs> is that the word? Yeah. That's another term that I love, and I feel like we don't use it enough here in the States. Hooligans. Uh, hooligans and hoodlums. I like yeah. hooliganism. Yeah. We'll talk hooliganism. about hooliganism. You like hooliganism as a word? or I like it, it as a word. Hoodlum, to me, has no menace to it at all. And you think of Sinatra calling himself the hoodlum from Hoboken. Sure. And you're just like, so a hoodlum is like a guy with a fedora and a cigarette who likes to sing? <laughs> hoodlum doesn't sound very frightening to me. <laughs> Sounds like a hoodlum is like my, you know, my grandma's favorite recording. <laughs> I don't think of, a, whereas a hooligan, that's like a soccer hooligan. Hoodlum ends up on a fucking mural at a pizzeria. Yeah, the hoodlum is just like kind of a gent who likes a little bit of whiskey every well, now and then. I would just say, you know, post-68, right? Like, you know, teenage and young youthful like, rebellion is much more prominent. I mean, that's like the thing this movie is coming out as quickly in response to as anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is right? just, again, like this, it's just a fast turnaround of the post-68 youth movement as this huge, sweeping, Hollywood-financed anarchist movie. Well, I think Alex is no good, and I don't think he should do any of the things that he does. Let me ask a question about a Ludovico technique. Well, That's right. <laughs> not quite yet. I feel like what, what's happening in the back half of the second act here is like, he, they're getting one up on him. Obviously, this right. is when they, he, they, they're like, we got to do more than just beat up homeless guys. And or they're know, trying to they sort of push money. him out of what he wants. And that's when he pushes them into the river in the, in the image you were showing. But also, like, at this point, when they're going to the cat lady's house, it's been almost 40 minutes of straight music. Like, the, the movie is just music. It's just, it's the classical, it's the score. It's one or the other at all times. And it's just so much sound in a way that it, it's kind of pre-setting up how bizarre the silence is going to feel when music is taken away from him. Which is just, again, the movie putting you inside his headspace by being like, for him, it's just always music. It's classical, it's whatever's on, it's Beethoven, it's this, it's that, it's fast, it's slow, but just for this guy, it's just always music, music, music. So with classical music, right, is this the first movie to make, like, for classical, like a love of classical music equals this person is actually really evil. Like a Hannibal Lecter kind of thing? Because it's no. become a trope no, now. I feel it's like, like anytime a character listens that's to... That's a classic World War II thing, too. Like, there's always, yeah. like, generals, right? You sure. were, like, listening to Wagner or whatever, right? right you right. know, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder. Where's the satanic panic around classical music? <laughs> it puts it in a very, in a youth mode, which is incongruous Look, beyond... Obviously, this is nothing compared to Sleeping with the Enemy, the ultimate villain who listens to classical music before doing a bad thing. Does anyone? Yes, of course. Okay, Alex gets that terrible thing. He sleeps with the enemy. One of Anna's no, favorite. One of Anna's favorite movies. Absolutely bananas movie. Um. Okay. They kill the cat. Well, they kill the cat lady. She dies of her injuries. Right. They kill her. Yeah. Well, he kills. Dick. I mean, they don't do anything. The guys, the droogs, You know, they're they're innocent essentially. They sort of set it up. But again, like the this sequence is incredible. And also, like, there's a trick he does here once that never occurs elsewhere in the movie, where they're like talking about her over the establishing shot of her doing the yoga with the cats. And then he just walks into the door. Like, it, or that he knocks on the door downstairs. 
when you see her and you think you think what you're seeing is the droogs describing it. And then you would cut back to the to them at the booth. But instead, it just condenses time only by a matter of a couple of hours. But it's a really clever editing trick. Is that, it weird that I find I find all of the opening act, opening two acts, as you would say, of this movie upsetting, but I don't find it scary. Is that weird or is that not weird? Like I don't find his home invasion scary. I don't find him scary exactly. Hmm. Is that crazy? Hmm. This movie upset me, and it upset me at the time when I was yeah. a teen, when I first saw it. But I don't have like a lot of tension to what he's doing. Yeah, I, I kind know of know we're moving it through a story. Scary. You don't yeah. think random attack? No, I do. That's what I'm saying. Like I should be more. I well, feel like I should be I more frightened because of like the home invasion. There's no like identification with the victims. I mean, it's yeah, a thing that people the future as well. Yeah, at this movie as a complaint, but it's it, right. You're not really getting to know them as anything other than victims, and you're seeing everything from his perspective. So that does result in it being more upsetting than it is scary, because there's not that sort of tension there. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, the wife you're the, you're the, complicit in having to watch these. Things. The writer's right. wife and the cat lady, I mean, combined must have fewer than twenty lines before right. they're out of the movie. Right. They're not characters. They're just pins for Alex to knock down. Yes. In his, that's that's in his, what I mean. It feels like we're moving through this because we have to understand the lengths of his depravity. But I just, that it's not even a complaint. It's just an observation. It's just interesting. It's part of the way that the movie just basically puts you on Alex's shoulder yeah. or often quite literally as the movie goes on, really starting in the next bit, starting when he's in jail in just a few minutes. <clears throat> you have people looking at the lens talking to Alex. Mm -hmm. So already it's just setting up this is you're with him. You are he is your host and humble narrator for this movie. And very soon you're going to have people talking to Alex, looking at you, the viewer. I do, so you don't get anything outside of him. I do always love the device of a narrator who is aware that they're a narrator, like sort of calling Alex, the frame, Deadpool, Deadpool. Mm -hmm. No, but you know what I'm saying, like calling the frame into question. Because sometimes you have narrators who are just telling you a tale and they're acting like they aren't telling you a tale. They're not acknowledging the weird artifice of the conceit. I like himself identifying as a as a narrator. I just prefer narrators to tell me if the story is not for the faint of heart, because otherwise, well, I, don't I know love that. that. I love for narrators to do that and then peace out for the rest That's of the movie. That's a specific until the last trigger warning seconds. I need. Like I'm like, is this for the faint of heart? I'm or not? always worried. <laughs> right. But by not saying it here, Alex is implying his story is for everybody. It's for everybody. It's it's for all ages. Come on, come on down. He's right. not. He's not. But the, the, you know, just one thing about the attack with the cat lady is like one of the most underanalyzed aspects of Kubrick, which, you know, think about this in the future. For, like, every time there's a handheld image in one of his movies, it's electrifying. One of the low-key, absolute best handheld image makers of all time. Mm. He says, and I, I can probably find it. I think I, I have the quote if you can't find it. Uh, you because know, it's one of my favorite things about him, ever. That he he did all the handheld stuff Always, himself. on all like, movies. Right. And the um, handheld in 2001, brief though it is, when he's kind of going in to disconnect Hal, is very exciting. This handheld melee here is just electrifying. Sort of the Barry Lyndon, like the handheld when they're fighting. Yes. The documentary he, filmmaker days. Like trying to, yeah. He says, um, the camera's on a dolly. You can go over the action of the scene with the camera operator and show him the composition that you want at each point in the take. But you can't do this when the camera is handheld. Sometimes there are certain effects which can only be achieved with a handheld camera. And sometimes you hold it because there's no other way 
to move through a confined space or over obstacles. Yeah. And again, it's just like, if he were the way people thought he was, he wouldn't have that attitude. Right. He'd be like, fix it. And instead he's just like, just give it to me. Let me just hold it. And I'll just... Pragmatism. I can't describe the way I want it to look because it just has to be crazy. Just give it to me. Yeah. And then every time he does that, the results are just out of this world. And this is one of the finest examples of that. So the third act of the film is... It ends with he goes to jail. I mean, this is the end of the second act. But again, this ends with Deltoid and the cops looking at the lens. uh, And then there's just a full reversal from Alex looking at the lens in the first shot. And now everyone's looking at him at the lens, just showing that he's lost control of his own story. He is no longer... gone to prison earlier. Just... But David, I feel like the vibe I keep on getting from this episode is that you endorse him and his behavior. You think he's cool and nice and normal. David really weirdly, I don't know why I culturally just, this is, but he really seems to identify with the, the British rulers in this film. It's so bizarre. <laughs> I just lo- also like the idea of like, it's who has no perspective you? of what it would be like to be a teenager. Yeah, anyway. yeah he, does, he like, only... The cops asking who attacked you and the, the person being like, he was like, these four guys dressed in white with bowler hats. And the cops were like, I don't know anyone who dresses that. <laughs> like, they had like, where are the cops like, oh, I know the four guys who dress in white with fucking bowler hats. In, in lieu of cufflinks, they do. had like sculptural <laughs> eyeballs with like gouged viscera around them. We saw, we, we picked up a couple guys like that, but they didn't have suspenders. And you said that these guys had suspenders. Yeah, so we they, let they them didn't go. have any weird crotch but, like, cards. They had pups, but they were on their butts. They ben, weren't in front. Do you know how the, how the outfit came about? I mean, some of the details, other things, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I looked up a little bit about the, her name is Melina or Melina Canonera. Melina Canonera, one of the most famous costume designers of all time. Yeah, like basically though, the idea was just all of the clothing had to be really easily attainable. Like they weren't going to create stuff. So like Kubrick was uh, with uh, um, uh, Malcolm McDowell and was like, let's go through your clothes. Like, what do you have? And he was like, well, these are my cricket whites. Sure. They do wear white to play cricket. This is like the cricket uniform. How would I know that? And then was like, up on the outside. We're all giving you a thumbs up. We're Good proud one. of you. Thank you for doing it. Uh, right. That's, that's, there you go. That's, but even like, well, the, that, that has to be itself. where things go, is that David just mutters under his breath, like oh, the no, no. old Jim Gaffigan routine. <laughs> He'll just say something and David will just go, how do, know, how do I know? Um, the third act is... But the even that is all, it, third it, act is all prison. It's subverting uh, uh, sort okay. of... British classism. No, because it, it... Oh, yeah, sure. But then, but, but then the other yes. subversion no, of that no, no, is no, when he goes to the record store, he's dressed like a, a dandy yeah. from the 20s. Right. Yeah. Got which is Austin just ostentatious and insane. Yes, he yeah. looks like Austin he's Powers. He looks shagadelic. He is a little shagadelic. I mean, the other thing... I don't think his actions are shagadelic, to be clear. <laughs> and they do not make Dave, me horny. I don't know why you like everything he does in this movie so much. Hey, when you're a teen, though, and you are making money know. as a hoodlum, yeah. like, you spend it on dumbass clothes. That's what you fucking do it when you're a, a bad thing. kid. Because yeah, all your other needs are taken care of. Yeah. He eats breakfast Record. at his parents' table exactly. every day. He doesn't yeah. have to pay rent. He, but again, like... But you see, like, Billy Boy and the other guys at the beginning, like, they're dressed kind of, like, they have, like, Nazi symbols on them. But again, much like Alex and the Droogs, they're they're so British, so 70s. Their hair, their sideburns, their aesthetics, but their clothes are very bizarre. But the idea that each gang has their own little uniform, certainly something, Ben, you can get behind is that... I Whether it be four or five guys per yeah. gang, like we all have to get on the same page the about what we're of Like we got to be strong in our theming. Right. We have to have a unified vision. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Which is what you guys should have. 
Oh, you think we should have a uniform? We should all dress identical. It would certainly throw people off when they show up. Yeah, that'd suck if the three of us are in like boiler suits. Some poor guest comes in. We're like, no, wait, hey, I up? like this challenge though. Can <laughs> I come? All right, yeah, all right I'm gonna work on it. this. You want to talk about the everything he gives us? will have will be cut off. Will yes. <laughs> be cut off shirt, cut off pants, cut off cut off socks, cut off shoes. It's dirty. It just covers the ankles. Yeah. Um, David right. wants to talk prison. Well, I just want to move. Forward. Well, this is the real tragic and weepy part of the story. What, As Alex says. Well, that's what he says. Right. I mean, I love the how long the like undressing and putting his. And that scene is that is ways. not there's not a fragment of that in the book. Right. This is one of the weirdest scenes that is entire. The book just basically I, goes right into him being doing the, the choir the, practice. Sure. But right. the, the whole check in is also one of the only other sets they build. Yes. And a scene that's entirely invented. There's not, not even like a reference. I, to I just love bringing the movie to a clanging halt with the most stereotypical, like, you know, British. I mean, we have to talk, we have to talk like, about Michael. Are you a homosexual? You I know, know, like, I that, all that yeah. stuff. Michael Bates. I mean, this is just venereal diseases. A, 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 it a, feels like a Monty Python sketch. A little bit. It yeah. really I mean, does. I mean, Ben, this guy, deltoid, and then the writer at the end of the movie, all three of these performances are so insane. They do not live in a world of either realism nor science fiction. They are coming strictly from a place of broad-ass comedy. And they somehow, they fit into this world. But no one is ever like, why are you acting like this? Why do you talk like this? <laughs> Especially the writer. Like, he's, his face yeah. just constantly being, like, wide-eyed and shaking. I mean, at least he's endured trauma. But, the you know, the, the, the warden here, he's just like, no one's like, the warden acts insane. And we all just kind of take him as like, you know, the, the chocolate and tobacco, you lose. <laughs> he just, everything he says is just like, you can imagine Kubrick just dying at the, what this guy is doing. It's an insane performance. And Dave is right. It go, I mean, it's, it's, you know, four or five minutes of the check-in. I, I mean, Michael Bates is also, he's quite well known in Britain for Last of the Summer Wine, which is a sitcom in which he's playing. Never heard like, of that, Griffin. Have you ever heard no, of that? I mean, Ben, have you ever heard about Britain? Music. They didn't air it in PBS. I was, so I, don't, I I was just saying this it. for the Doughboys, where I, met, I, I mentioned Porridge, which is a famous British sitcom. How do you know that? <laughs> they were making fun of me. And I was, it is one of those when you arrive in Britain, especially when I was nine years old. Yeah. And I'm like, so what are your cultural touches? You guys got like Power Rangers? Like, and they're like, well, there's like a famous sitcom called Porridge, and our, and our biggest adventure is this guy in a scarf. <laughs> who's in a phone box. Like, Britain is so weird. That's all I'm going to say. That's all my only response. Like, he he's such a definitive type. Yeah, he's incredible. Like, the the, the stick-up-his-ass prison guard guy. Well, I mean, like, what I'm sorry. I just, I'm sorry. His, I just want to quote, because David's text was really funny here. He says, really no better example of classic UK sitcoms that one of the best ones is called Porridge, and it's about a prison. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> people are like, oh, we all we all have to have a good laugh, and you're like, oh, what was the show called? Porridge. Oh, what's it about? Well, a guy goes to prison and lives there. <laughs> it's like, about wet mush. <laughs> <laughs> like when I was ten years old and living in the UK and watching TV, news to me, and you'd stumble on Porridge and be like, this is their Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> right. He's in this show, Michael Bates. He's in Porridge. He wasn't in Porridge. He was in Last of the Summer Wine, which is just another hilarious where you're like, Last of the Summer Wine is that some sort of melancholy like. Work of literature? No, it's a sitcom. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Our longest running sitcom, three we episodes. We all fucking laughed our asses. Yeah, yeah the, this whole scene, like, the just this, the the gradual loss of his humanity and yes. him becoming six double five three two one. And him being compliant. He's so compliant. He has this idiotic smirk on his face right. the entire time. It's like, even still, he's not taking this seriously. 
he just doesn't really view his imprisonment as anything to be that worried about in the telling. It makes me think a lot about when you're at that age and like the how like you're how capable you are of manipulating adults in this really diabolical it's, it's way. You're all looking about. at me like no, no, you no, don't no, relate. No, no, I, no, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, David might it's not. It's the thing I was talking about. David just was like, more like, I like to manipulate other children from a position of authority. I feel like people focus on like teenage like insecurity awkwardness, but there's like such a bizarre confidence to teenagers that is just like this weird sense of like immortality. There's a bit of that, although obviously, and like I'm starting to understand how to control my. But I also, I mean, the the when I feel like kids are their most terrifying is kind of when they're like 11, when like puberty, the hammer, the awkward hammer of puberty is not yet hit. Yeah, and you're kind of like, I'm a big kid, man. I really do run the world. I got no pressures, you know. Yeah, but when you're 15, you're actually like walking around places by that yourself. That is, the, you shit. are you are allowed to walk around by yourself, and people like might treat you like an adult. But David, David, was... you're you're steering it off topic. Even I know. I feel like David, this is not what I you know. want we're to be almost, doing. And we're almost done with the film, which is not really. Um, but <laughs> the um, last, but, uh, the, you know, the the, 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 the Ludovico and the recovery is half of the movie. It is. And if we're going to go on a, a tangent about what age people walk around, we're never going to get there. What yeah. age people walk around? Great tangent by me. Um, <laughs> I will say what you <laughs> just everyone weigh in on what age you remember walking around. <laughs> I was going to bring up the, the and I don't know if you felt this way, but the mortal terror at fifteen of like. Oh no! I'm gonna have to interact with a grown up. Yeah. To like buy my movie ticket or yes. you know get my McDonald's. The or grown whatever. up being twenty. Exactly. But right. like you're right. still just sort of like I better do this right. Like, yeah. Oh, but Alex, yes. that's the thing. There's no one in this movie that's in between his age and basically his parents. Generation. Right. It's all. It's all. You a bunch never of stick up see people that are in their thirties. It's either the teenagers or teenage adjacent and old people. But even but, his parents seem like they're. 60. Yeah. Even though they're dressed like well, like, like very in, yeah. hip in this sure, like they're in this weird clothes. fucking way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it just makes them actually look more uncool. But this yeah. sequence like he, there's no NADSAT talk a, as he's in prison. There's a little bit I think in the voiceover but basically his personality as we saw it in the opening sequence is gone. Like he is not the same person anymore Could, in that he's now six double five three two one. Right. And like the the back half of the movie is slower. Am I allowed to say that? Well, yeah, we're almost there. Slower than the two sex years thing. have passed. He's he's he's. The, I, think, I think it's yeah. two years of a fourteen year sentence. I do have. I mean, this is we can't really get into this. Unfortunately, I'm sure this is what people are clamoring for. But the thing that this movie sort of like I think can be studied philosophically, especially this segment in relation to. Ben, I'm sure you're familiar. You're, I'm sure you balance, guys are all getting power there too. shifted, and I like but it. The, <laughs> the table's tilted this way. This would you guys? I feel like this is obvious, but like whenever you guys were asked to do an assignment in school, uh-huh. you were always like, "How can I make this about movies?" Yeah, absolutely. I definitely could be guilty of that. So at some point, I read and had to do for a philosophy class an assignment on Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish. His 1975 book about the carceral state. You guys are so and the, fancy high school. The way that the, this was not high school. This oh, is college. Sorry. Oh, this is college. And the way that the sort of Western approach to penal systems in the modern age, post-executions, had evolved. And I was just like, obviously, Orange, I'm going to write baby. a paper on Clockwork Orange. Right, right. Like, obviously, I have nothing to say about philosophy, divorce from movies. I but remember this section, I had a science class where they asked us to do a presentation on a modern phenomenon in science, and I picked... Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Please say Lover. Spider-Man. I don't face-off. And, face off. And I just talked about the movie Face Off for like 10 minutes. And I was like, so is facial transplant surgery possible? Maybe. Who Stay tuned say? for the future. <laughs> truly. Truly. I listed the box In office. I talked Nigeria about Nigeria is a land of contrast. I did. That's what I said. Libya, I believe. Sorry. Yeah, that's all I said. And in anyway, St. Anne's, they were like, Griffin, A+. 
No, th- I mean they, that's they didn't give grades. That's anyway. how bad of a student I was. No, but they they brought out the A plus for Griffin's face off. No, it no. sounds like Griffin was taken aside and given a conversation. Yeah. I, I was yeah. like the academic Alex DeLarge of my shitty, stupid school for dumb special kids. But just basically, like again, this is only interesting in that, like by the seventies, after this movie is made, there's like this conversation about what do we do now that we don't kill criminals, right? Sure. Is reform possible right. because we can't just have people locked up forever? Right. Which is exactly what the government comes and says in this movie that predates this Foucault book by like four or five years, which is like prisons are, and now this is still a thing. But you want to lock up a criminal to get them off the streets. You're not going to kill them. You're not going to cure them. So what do we do with them? And, the, and Foucault and Gates. I, I just will also, and not to be Mr. Britton again, but death penalty had been recently abolished in the UK. I mm-hmm. feel like it was a it was a present concern. Like, what are we going to do now? Yeah, and you hear the government say that when they show up and they're basically, they say like, they say something like, soon these prisons will be needed for political purposes and that common criminals can't take up all this space. And basically the government is coming and being like, we have to lock up our enemies. So if someone's arrested right. for like violence just or drugs. Fucking, yeah, just give him a Ludovico and just then he'll get bark anytime he wants to be violent. Right, problem solved. Problem solved, right? Problem solved. Yeah. But again, like when Alex talks <laughs> yeah. to, the, to the chaplain, uh, uh, in, or the chaplain, uh, however it's pronounced. Chaplain, sure. Chaplain or chaplain? I would say chaplain. I would say chaplain too, but yeah. you know. Early? I wouldn't, I wouldn't swear that I'm right. Robert Downey. Um, yeah. The two shot of them is he's, he's revealing that he's heard about the Ludovico technique is the same as him talking to Deltoid. And again, you're kind of putting him in conversation with these adults for two, three, four minutes at a time as opposed to Ben, like you're saying, like he's not talking at the beginning of the movie. He's just kind of yelling things and running around. I and mean, now he's having these long conversations with these people that are tasked with keeping him under control. And he's, again, just in a completely different state than he is at the beginning of the movie as he begs to be given the treatment. Right. The Ludovico technique... Which is, is all obvious, of Act 4. ...is obviously horrifying to consider and is horrifyingly presented. But it is incredibly comical to me as well. Like, it does... like It is like a weird square peg round hole thing where the government's like, that'll solve it. Like, does this, am I crazy? Well, what, no, it's what you said about it being like the logic of a child. Yeah, right. Right. I already said it. Right. There you go. Uh, yeah. It's got I, Milgram experiment vibes. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, just big bzz, time. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It kind of has Homer being forced to eat all the donuts yeah. vibes. Ironic punishment department. Yes. Uh, I mean, this uh, is the ironic punishment department. It is. It truly They're is. like, well, we're just going to make a movie that looks like the first part of this movie, but cheaper and crappier. Right. Yeah. And you'll just have to watch your own horrible life. Yeah. Until you go insane. Yeah. And it's, Right. It's just, it's very, but like, again, like the, 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 the handheld shot with the assistants bringing him the food and I believe the, you know, the liquid, the vaccine or whatever they're giving him the injection, like the, this is just this long handheld drugs, right. shot down. Right. And it, again, it's like, he makes this shot so loose and so excellent to establish this insane new center that Alex is now being held in to just video the films. And the fact that they look exactly like him and his drugs, he doesn't acknowledge that at all. He, he right. really has this dissociative quality where he's not like, I dressed like that as recently as two years ago. He's just like, oh, as Griffin says, it's funny how the colors of the real world only seem real. Like, he's just like, this is a movie. Yeah, Here we are. He has that. no awareness that there's any resemblance between his own actions and what he's seeing, which again is Kubrick just saying like, don't you idiot people get it? Like, what you're guilty of and what you want to avoid are the same thing. You want to abolish violence, so you do violence to others. You want to, you know, be sexually secure, so you get obsessed with sex. Like, he's just so frustrated with people's lack of finding the proper balance of their own humanity. 
on a very base level, eye stuff freaks me out more than anything. It, it certainly is uncomfortable. It's yeah. absolutely, in a movie filled with a lot of sequences of very upsetting well, imagery. Also, that it's basically real, what you're yeah, watching. Yeah, is, that's, is really I mean, that's what really fucks me up. Yeah. Uh, this McDowell 40, 50 years later interview I was watching, he said that um, the guy who's next to him administering the eye drops is like a real eye right, doctor. Right, right, right. Right? Makes sense. Kubrick's whole thing was like, I have this idea we can do it for real. And McDowell's like, well, I'm not fucking doing that. And he's like, That'll I got a doctor, reaction. it'll be fine. And he's right. like, no, you're going to use my stand-in. My stand-in has similar eyes. And he's like, we're not using your stand-in, it's going to be you. They were just fighting about this back and forth. But he was like, this guy's going to be here. He's going to give you drops every 15 seconds on camera. He'll be on camera. It'll be fine. And then they're there on the day filming. And Kubrick's like, we should give him a line. He's on camera. He should say something. So he says, like, what is it? Like, little Alex, are you ready for your drops or something like that? <laughs> sure. He says some line like that. <laughs> sure. But the way McDowell told it is like, here's this guy whose job is just like, you need to make sure this guy's eyes don't get fucked up. And then Kubrick said, like, we're going to throw you a line. That's fun. And then the guy was so obsessed with the line. God, right. He's like, don't worry, Mr. Kubrick. I won't get this wrong. And then right. he's fucking up the eye drops. Exactly. Yeah, right. So he was like, McDowell was doing the count in his head every 15 seconds and like hitting the guy. And the guy kept on leaning over and going like, what's your character's name again? And he was like, don't think about <laughs> what the What do you think my motivation line. in this scene is? Though? Yes. But You're giving me eye drops, you fucker. You a, like, A, it's always the hardest thing to do in a scene is only have one line. And B, if you have a non-professional person being told they have to act on top of doing the thing that they're used to doing on a regular basis, suddenly they come all consumed with the obsession of that. Um, the other thing he said that just really haunted me is that, like, they're, uh, they're giving him, like, numbing agents, right? Throughout this whole sequence. And then it's, like, you know, it was shitty, scary, upsetting, whatever. Uh, but he's not feeling it. Uh, he goes home from set. He's driving the car, and it, like, wears off. Right. And then he, he had scratched his cornea. He was in incredible yes. pain. Yes. And he said he hit a speed bump on the road. And he described it as, it felt like a razor blade went straight down my body. And I, like, got to my home. I had to call my doctor. And he had to, like, just inject me full of everything. That is upsetting. Yeah. Sounds like fun. Sounds like fun. Anyway, this is the portion of the movie where I have to, like, kind of, like... It's just incredible. All, like, the sort of wonky things on his head. Like, this, the design of everything on his head and this sort of so-called technology that they're using to monitor. It's just, it's so silly looking. Yeah. We have to talk about the the sort of post treatment demonstration. Oh my god! Oh, sure. Yes, it's absolutely. one of the. It's just an insane scene. It's just like a genuinely deranged scene with the with the the comedian. The who are these performers? This is what I'm talking about. The world of this movie is a world of just such grotesque caricatures of human beings. But these all must have been like British comedy television guys, right? There's no way to know. If only we had some resource. I think the comedian's name is Michael Clive. Okay. The Clive is in his name somewhere, which yeah. of course it sounds very British. But the rhythms of them. It, but he comes in like yeah. he's he comes in like he's Mo. He right. comes in and he's poke, poking him in the in in the nose and <laughs> yanking his ears and Bonking him, stepping on his toes, and, and then bows, and then he and ta- they clap. He yeah. tells him that he stinks, and throughout the whole time that that this guy is torturing him. It's like this fife march playing. It's like this yeah. very medieval. It's just it. Nothing about this scene has any bearing on reality or logic, and yet the sort of agony of it sticks out his tongue and licks his boot while this bizarre-looking man does this silly slapstick routine. It's just like 
you can't even believe that there's people that have made it this far in the movie thinking like this movie glorifies violence and celebrates an anarchist violent main character. And it's like the main character has now watched the beginning of the movie. Right. And basically said to the audience, violence is a horrible thing. And this makes me sick to have to watch. And the idea that you've gotten this far and you're like, I'm sure the filmmaker doesn't agree with that. It's like, really, the main character just basically turned to the camera and said, the content of this movie is violent and upsetting. Well, I hope also, you know no, that. You have like this audience of like buddy-duddies laughing and applauding. Well, the watching. reaction shots of Michael Bates right. here. How can anybody say Kubrick has no sense of humor when you're watching Michael Do Bates? Do you think people think, say that? I've heard it said, yes. When, when, when Michael Bates watches the naked woman walk out, the, the series of, of reaction shots of him watching her are just like all-time reaction shots. Yeah. It's, and then the way he's clapping when she leaves. Yeah. He's just like, he's like, he's never seen a naked woman before. This guy is giving an it's incredible silent said, performance. Like these people being like revolted by the idea of these violent youths and then just like cheerfully watching them subject this guy to violence as quote-unquote proof that he's cured of violence. But it's like, yeah, but you're watching and enjoying him getting fucked with in the same way. There's nothing funnier than telling someone that they stink. It's just so it's, solid. It's maybe the all-time greatest burn. Yeah, he does. The, he moves the hand, and Alex is like, oh, I took a shower just yesterday, and he's just like, oh, horrible stench. He, you. It's just All incredible. Right. Let's talk about the fifth act. A of free the film, man. Please. Yes. A free man. The long, kind of the longest act, or it's, maybe the longest like, feeling. These both are like 40-ish minutes. Yeah. The, the whole Ludovico sequence. Every event. time I watch this movie, which I've seen several times, mostly as a teenager, I really associate it with being a teenager and like my friends being obsessed with it as well. Um, I always forget how fucking long it is at the back end. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. Just I flies by. Flies of, right by. Of the, the treatment being so much closer to the end. Right. No, there's a full 40 minutes yeah. when he gets That's, out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, like at this point, a lot of these scenes are getting really long. Mm -hmm. the, the demonstration scene with the comedian is really long. So then, yeah, but he, what is the, one of the other big changes in the book is that here his parents are reading in the paper, cat killer, free, cat lady killer freed. In the book, he just shows up and they're like, what, what on earth is happening? Like, there's, what technique? How did you get out? Yeah. Sure. Interesting change, I think. He's got his big parcel. That, that is far, yeah. Okay, fuck Joe. I don't like Joe's attitude at all. I think yeah. Joe's the villain. He, I was fucking Ben. Movie. I was about to say the exact same thing. He has one the of my true favorite lines the in the movie. He's bad roommate. Yeah, like he and he's like he's like these are my parents and now. Like, like not do it with your so weird. Do it yeah. with your mouth covered. It's bloody revolting. Incredible yeah, line. Joe stinks. Joe but also like stinks. what kind of world is this that this government is kind of building these systems of protection and that grown men have to just live with adult married like there's nowhere else for joe to live yeah I, I mean i don't know if that's a symptom of society i think that's joe's deal yeah fucking joe man like i wish kubrick had done a joe spinoff <laughs> called joe's deal because i got some questions david you want what do you think of the free man stuff david i mean i love patrick mcgee humble it's <laughs> a huge humble brag is it mcgee or maggie <laughs> huh it, i've never known is it mcgee like you know, McDuck, yes. or is it Maggie? No, it's McGee. 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 Because his real name is M C G. -E. I see. It's not M. I thought it was M A. McGee okay. with the A is a stage name. I'm not sure why he changed it. Okay. Um, but um, 
Probably too. There was the, probably another Patrick McGee out there. You want to talk about the return of McGee? I want to talk about one quick shot before getting there. Sure. When they're taking Alex after, uh, it's this whole parable of recidivism. Obviously, he retrieved. He's out there. You're like you're you're healed. You're out. And they're like, by the way, you have nothing to your name. We sold all your possessions. You have nowhere to live. So mm-hmm. you'll figure it out, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, right. But anyway, again, sorry. it's just this deeply cynical view of like they his, want. Yeah, it's his just, old droogs are cops now. The cynicism yeah. is just hitting so hard at this point. Mm-hmm. But this handheld shot where they're dragging him into the setting sun to beat him into the water tank. Like, just, this shot goes on, it's gotta be like 45 seconds of them just dragging him through the field. Uh And there's just no set design, there's nothing. It's just a field Mm. with the setting sun, and it's just so incredible, and I, I would love to know how many takes of that they did. Like, this just, this is not precise, you can't do a hundred takes of something with a setting sun like that unless you do three a day for a month. I, I just want to make something clear. Stanley Kubrick is a humorless scold who made hermetic movies and he did a hundred takes every time and it drove everyone crazy. David, I heard no one disagrees with David. David. So I heard love it on everything the... Alex does in this movie. David, I <laughs> yeah, I love it. I heard it on the killing episode. I don't need it repeated. It's almost like you're talking about someone who's not in the room and I have no control over. Well, it's almost like you're talking about, like, you have any knowledge of British society, class, (laughs) or culture. Stop Stop making yourself to be this self-appointed expert. Have you ever seen the freaking, uh, the birthday party? Uh, no. Patrick McGee, incredible in that. And I watched that as a teenager, I think, because it was, I had a real pinter phase as a teenager. Oh, boy. What American boy has a pinter phase? I grew up in the United Kingdom. (laughs) What? You Is that even a common thing there to have a pinter phase? No. For little English major nerds, it might be, but no, I don't know if it's a con. I don't think it's like, oh, he's having his pinter phase in here. It was, oh, everyone's folding their laundry. I mean, the spot of pinters, you. <laughs> oh, with the pauses, eh? All those pauses. Hello! Have a big, a big pinter phase. Menace, is it? Pinter phase coming out party. It started! It started! <laughs> Oh, you're 15 years old. Here's your collected <laughs> pinter. <laughs> Starting to worry it might never happen I mean, for him, but then it came in one day. It came in really <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, no, he was, oh, he was just on the Beckett always. And then finally I hear, oh, what is that? The caretaker. <laughs> anyway, I, I had a bit of a pinter phase. I think he's incredible in that movie, Patrick McGee. He's got, you know who he reminds me of? And this is silly. Um, Fucking what's his name from Breaking Bad? Margulis? Mark Margulis? You know, the guy, oh, they, Mark Margulis. The crazy old grandpa. Yeah. They both have the similar, both, I guess because they're just both wheelchair bound. Sure. The, the similar like brooding intensity. Yeah. You He's know what a- I thought about? I thought about uh, Arrested Development. Uh, shoot me! <laughs> shoot me, dragon! <laughs> shoot me, dragon! <laughs> they have the, he has the same look. That is the funniest thing on Arrested Development maybe ever. And yet it's so incongruous with the show in a way. Yeah. Like when Martin Short comes in and is doing that, even in the heightened version of that, you're kind of like, Jesus, this is a lot. Like, this is a very complicated, bit heavy <laughs> character. He's too small, but he's like a buff old man and he needs a big man to, to throw him around and his legs don't work. <laughs> and also, he like has acid reflux and he's always like barfing. <laughs> Swoop me, dragon. <laughs> Swoop me, dragon. <laughs> Oh, sorry. The 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 way that we get back into the writer's house is all the same shots from Act One. It's a complete. I mean, not beat for beat, but like 
you know, the doorbell and then kind of going over right, the track. Yeah, it's all like he's, he's repeating yeah. a lot of, you know, the establishing shot of the home sign now in the rain. Like, it's just he's using all these cues to be like, it's the same, but it's horrible now. The, and, the room is all different. The wife is gone. Who is there lifting weights? His, his helper. Dragon. Short. Dragon. But, uh, yeah. but like the but, whole but, thing but, with, but, 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 but the character's called Alexander, right? Uh, the McGee the writer, yeah. He's F. like Alexander or something. Right. He's like this guy, perfect example of like government overreach, right? Like he's like he's this a figure is, of yeah. Uh, yeah, a figure of the fringe, you know, left if the government is conservative, and he's just like this is you know we've gone too far. This is crazy. Yeah. We can't be rewiring people's brains. But it, yeah, but he much like the the people in prison and the Ludovico people, they just look at him and they're like. Finally, a means to my end. Right, right. You, exactly. That's the thing. You, boy, can be a pawn in my goals. And the, the kid, the 18, 19-year-old kid at this point, is just like, I have no free will. Yeah, whatever. You, you will use me. You'll give me a bath? Like, I guess I'll be. But, like, that's mm -hmm. the thing. Like, it would be a little too easy for it to be, like, he's just this compassionate guy who's, even though he was attacked, like, you know, he's like, no, come in. You're all, oh, you poor kid. Oh, but, but, like, right. there is that edge of, like, No, I oh, can perfect. use you to prove yeah, a point. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And this, but again, like by this, the way he's acting clear, here, he's still probably better than teen Alex DeLarge, though. By this point, like the way that he's acting now is like, you know, when he's like, the food. <laughs> like, it's just another person that Alex is just like, he should say, like, and this is one of Anna's, like, the things that drive her the craziest and make her the most uncomfortable in David Lynch things is some future guest. when someone is acting in Owner of the Riddler cape. Yes, owner, yes, still owner of the of the Riddler cape, as I told you both recently mentioned. Riddler cape, alive yes. and well. Yes. It just drives her so crazy in a fun, you know, reactionary way of like, how come no one is pointing out that this person is acting the way that they're acting? Oh, you mean just the classic movie thing of like everyone's just sort of looking to the left and so they don't... Yeah, I mean, for her, it was, it, for her, it was Dougie Jones and all of Twin Peaks The Return. Sure. Where it's just as 12, 13 episodes of this, she just kept going, how come no one is turning to him and going, what is wrong with you? Well, it's, it's and, the, and the way she's all these, got a great ass thing where it's like the kind of performance that comes out of 100 takes where someone's right. losing their mind. They're like, right. I don't know, what the fuck do you want me to do? And right. they do something insane. But the writer here is but getting the other play. Actors just, Give me all your God! Right. The, but the writer, oh the writer is getting to just play like the bookend of his earlier sequence where he's yeah. not like this at all. And it, it's really bizarre and exciting. And again, like the spaghetti scene is so long. And it's not, it's not like this in the book because in the book, this is where he's kind of putting the pieces together. Whereas now he already knows. Because much like Alex, he heard music that triggered his insanity. Right. Yeah. So already, even though he didn't go through the Ludovico technique, the meaning here is like, you cannot go through the technique and have the same psychological reaction. Right, right. And this guy, it was one 20 minute part of his life. For Alex, it was two weeks, and you hear music and your brain just breaks. Yeah. And then this spaghetti scene just, it, it, it cannot, you cannot believe how long the scene goes on for. It contains no new information. <laughs> right. They're just repeating things we already know. And it's, and it's captivating. The wine, like drugging, is. Such a, it's like he such a funny button. He knows it's drug too. He's holding it up. Yeah, no, I, mean, I know. It, and like all the, like, you know, he's like smelling it, checking it, but then always like, you know, justifying why he's taking so long. And then he takes two big gulps and then starts relaying like sort of his story. Have another glass. But then it's just like when it hits, he smacks into it's the fucking I mean, it's, spaghetti. It's, like it's, it's a sketch. It's, yeah. it's a yes. Simpsons joke. It's yeah, just unbelievable. Totally. And like if you had a comedian who said Kubrick is humorless 
and they had ever seen this movie where he's like, I just have the feeling that any second something terrible might happen to me. You'd be like, oh, they must have missed this movie because that's like, that's just perfect comic timing. And it's it's a great McDowell timing too. A lot of Simpsons refs in this app. Yeah. But the Simpsons no, reference is Clockwork you know, Orange a lot. Yeah, it does. So that's why Alex it feels sympathetic. On this episode. <laughs> that's, right. that's the reason they, there is they like, nailed it. You know, the, the, it's probably one of the most inappropriate for children movies that they reference a lot. There's the shot of Bart reaching for the cupcakes. That's no, exactly no, no, right. You're right. You're totally right. As yes. I mean, it makes sense. It's generationally perfect for it's that It's also, it's story. what you're talking yes. about, too. The fact that this movie existed as Forbidden Fruit for so long, where you're like, this movie's rated X it's, and it's, it's banned in all these countries. It's why I associate with teenagehood. So specifically, not just the subject matter, but just the fact that as teenagers, we were all like, can you believe this exists? Right, because it's not like, oh, this is a rated R movie I might accidentally see on TV or whatever. Yeah, it's I like mean, you have to find it. I right. saw one of, I've seen this movie in the theater I would say over 15 times. But one time I saw a That's sick- a lot of times. Oh, every yes. time. I mean, it was I, not out when to, you were to this day, if I saw it was playing on 35, I would make a point of going. I'd try to never miss it. For the future, David, if you ever want to end an Alex episode early, tell him Clockwork Orange is playing at IFC and it starts in 30 minutes. And I'll right. be like, IFC has a print. Are you sure? That doesn't sound right. But it's I saw not a DCP. I saw a 16 millimeter print of this in a library once. That's wow. Great. Because I saw that it was playing and I thought, that sounds fun. I'd like to watch that. Where was this library? It was in Philadelphia. Fair enough. It was in my, my teenage years. Wait, I'm sorry. You grew up in Philadelphia? The Liberty Bell in Independence Hall, Philadelphia. The shot of him throwing himself out the window, that's kind of an iconic shot, right? Because that's like... Hammer in a box. Kubrick, right. Yeah. yeah, devising this whole crazy contraption. I wonder what kind of box that was. Mm-hmm. Kubrick's boxes. But Micron of card. But even before that, the long zoom out of all the people listening to him in agony upstairs with the speakers turned upright on the pool table and they're just throwing, you know, the billiard. That that shot is incredible. Just everyone sitting there. You guys have, I, I kept waiting. Some, David Prowse is in this scene. Yeah, yes. Can I give you the Prowse story? I mean, I do want to wrap up soon, but like it wow. isn't, you know the story, right? Or maybe not. The story is that David Prowse is Darth Vader. I mean, he's dragon, he's a, essentially. He's a bodybuilder. Right. You know, David Prowse is a very large man. He played Darth Vader. Uh, and there's a scene where he has to carry him in the wheelchair down the stairs. There's lots of scenes where he's carrying yeah. him not in the wheelchair. And Stanley says, this is the bit where you carry him down the stairs in the wheelchair. And Prowse said, hang on a minute, Stanley. Patrick weighs about 170 pounds. The wheelchair is probably another 30. I've got to stagger down three flights of stairs, wheel him into the table and hold a conversation. And Kubrick's like, yeah, you're a strong guy, aren't you? And uh, Prowse says, yeah, I am. But your name's not one take Kubrick, is it? And the oh, whole set boy. apparently goes like totally quiet, right? Like, cause, and Kubrick apparently smiles and says, we'll get it done as quickly as possible. And Prowse says, we did that in six takes, which was amazing for him. So Prowse actually successfully called him out wow. on set of like, look, I'm not fucking bringing this wheelchair down the stairs 50 times, buddy. I don't care how big I am. It's an incredible physical presence and performance. Yeah, he's, oh. It's like Schwarzenegger in The Long Goodbye. It's yeah. just like this. I think the whole line on Prowse is like the man had fucking presence beyond just like being big. He looks big. so good in the suit yes, when they're listening to Alex lose his so line. ludicrous when he talks that they could I not know. use his voice. Have like, you ever seen the footage? No he's got this lovely West Country accent. Like he 
did all the Darth Vader dialogue on set and was under the impression that his voice was going to be used in the movie. And it sounds like Darth Vader wants you to get him like a bunch of potatoes or whatever. Like he has this like really thick kind of like farmer accent. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Really? Yeah. I'll look this up. But but it is one of these things where like everyone who's working on Star Wars is like, this movie's going to fucking flop. Yeah, this sounds stupid. That having been (laughs) said. It's very funny. When you look at modern Star Wars stuff, where it is not Prowse in the suit, and you still have James Earl Jones's voice, the performance never works as well never quite as same. when Prowse was the guy. Like, he did undeniably have a thing. This movie and the sort of, the, the you know, all the other British people from the bums to, you know, uh, all the, you know, the prison warden, like, this just feels like it lives in the same world of casting as Star Wars to me. Yeah. Like... It just, it's only, you know, six years apart of casting, but this kind of Englishness yeah. where you look at Star Wars and you're like, that's what people looked like in England in the 70s. Yep. Despite yep. being the future, this is exactly the same to me. And yet that's what I love so much about both but movies. But that's what, right. Both movies where they're like, what will the future fascist state be like? And it's like, you know, there's going to be some scary stuff, but it's also going to be like a lot of English pencil pusher guys in the background being yeah. like, me. Before we talk about the final scene in the hospital, which is where the cynicism of this movie goes nuclear, mm-hmm. the one other big change is that in the book, when he gets out, when he takes his, his bundle from his parents, he goes to the library to look up how to kill himself painlessly. Yes. yes. And right. that is where he encounters the bum. And then it plays out the same. Right. Um, but yes, that, it's just I remember, weird I remember that, that in the book, that the painlessly thing, like, because he's had enough pain. In right. This, uh, and then in the movie, it's just kind of him life, looking yes. at a bridge and you get that he's thinking about jumping sure. off of it. No, it'd be a bit weird in the movie the, if he the, was like yeah. off to the library and Googling suicide or whatever. <laughs> it's not There's really something trans- that has that joke in it where someone's Googling like how to kill self painlessly. Sure. It's like from whatever. I'll, I'll remember it tomorrow. Well, but we'll like throw that in tomorrow. The, um, the, the, the way the bums attack him is very insane and funny. Just the group, yeah. as he says in the voiceover, like the filthy, stinking bums descending upon him and the one that steals stinking. his package just shuffles away. Well, but I mean, yes. But I just love the the conceit of like them being like, all right, technique didn't really work, but we can't be admitting that. So can you just kind of go along with it? This you know, is, yeah. I mean, this yes. is yes. where the movie to me gets like, if people are like, that movie is kind of hard to watch and morally dubious. To me, yes, there's the violence that I think the movie self-critiques. But by this point, just like the audacity to be so cynical, to have the prime minister come in and be like, look, I'm sorry. Now the writer, we put him away. That guy is a menace to himself and to others. And it's just like, that poor man. He's like, and the fact that the movie is just like, oh, the writer, yeah, he, he's just in an yeah, institution. We've right. just seen what institutions look like in this world. Right. That crippled man is in there now. Having survived horrible trauma. And he's just like, oh, we put him away. And to have Alex, after everything, just have this guy go, how would you like to uh, be a friend to us? And he just goes, sounds good to me. Right. It's just like his embrace of every, what is he rebelling against at this point if not the government, it's not, he's not rebelling against society because he essentially becomes a government employee. Yeah. He agrees to be like, sure, I'll be kind of your spokesperson. Your and the full, and again, like you talk about Kubrick's outlook and his cynicism. Here's the, here's the end. This guy starts off as a raping, murdering psychopath. And by the end, he is a government employee posing for the photographers that were already there knowing that this was going to work out. The idea that there's no chance that he would say, get lost, 
I hate you. I will spend my life crusading against this government. The pictures would all be with him with thumbs down. Yes. Instead. And instead, the prime minister is like, he's going to say yes. There's no doubt he's going to say yes. And this final moment to me is like, there is this so devoid of optimism or hope. It is so cynical. Right. And well, then he just becomes his yeah. government propaganda tool instead of what he is in the extra chapter, which we can now finally recap, which I had a real, real uh, Mandela effect reading. I don't know well, if you... How, what do you mean? Because in my memory, I was like, the extra chapter, Alex is like 50. Uh-huh. And he's an old man and he's kind of reformed and you get the sense that still inside him is something of a, of a psychotic. Right. And for 20 years, since I last read this, I thought that was the extra no, he's, chapter. But he, right, he's like... It's, it takes place it's, like a year... He's 18 years old. He's like a right, year right, later yeah. and yeah. he just has a new gang yeah. and then runs into one of the old gang who's like, yeah, I have a family now. Right. And Alex just goes, well, interesting. I wonder... Maybe I'm just going to go home and not go out tonight for the for the violence. I, maybe I could have a family too. He's, he's shaking his sillies. It's out. basically yeah. true, but it, like the the ending of him becoming a government pawn yeah. to help assuage people's nervousness about the mistreatment of prisoners is just like that's dark. That's a darker ending than I think oh, people absolutely. give him credit for. The cynicism of if you track his parents' relationship to him, right, and that they are at their most terrified of him when he is coming out of what has then been presented to them as an entirely successful treatment, right? Right. They're oblivious when he is at his most criminal. Then when he comes back and they're going, this fucking work, we cured the guy, they view him as like a ticking time bomb. And then at the end, when he's the victim of like malpractice, the modern age, they once once again just have endless sympathy, empathy. Even though they know that he is now not. That's the point. You know, right? Like he is violent, or he has the capability. Right. They finally have more compassion for him at that moment. And his rejection of them, of his own, you know, M and P or M and D or whatever he calls them. Yeah. And his embrace of the prime minister. It's just like that is so cold. And again, okay, fine. Maybe Kubrick is cold by reputation, but like. That is ice. That is ice cold. That is crazy. To have I him- think kids are callous. Like when you're that age, you're so fucking callous. He's trying to manipulate himself back into the position that he started at, yeah. and this is getting him as close to it. But now he has fucking money and status and power. It's the natural progression of basically being a fucking bully. Yeah, the bully ends up being like you the, sell out and you become a fucking cop bastard. Yeah, right. You become a fucking cop. The bully becomes a cop and then gets to keep being a bully. Yep. And Alex gets to continue to have his visions and maybe even act on them with complete protection and approval. Yeah. Of the government. Now he's insulated and he can be he can exist in the shadows and like do all kinds of more sick shit. And in and this get away version, with without the extra chapter, if this guy gets in trouble with the law, it's going to go away. It's, you know, someone's going to come and be like, you can't touch him. He's one of ours. Right. And that's, that's, that's the note the movie ends, yeah. ends on with him continuing to have these fantasies. And you know that he can go out and get whatever he wants tomorrow, robbing and whatever. And then the prime minister will say, don't touch him. He's very important to the administration. And that to me is just like, Jesus, that's the meaning of the movie. This is, I'm also just cutting into the hospital when he wakes up and the people are, the nurse and the doctor are having sex. It's just like. Oh, yeah, that is funny. Such a dim view. And also, very English, too. That's a very English, like, oh, nursey, you know, and like chasing after it a It feels very Benny nurse. Hill to yes. sort of just very encounter ben, a, a diddling on. nurse and doctor. Yeah. Yes. But again, it's diddling. just like... Diddling. Rumpy, the, pumpy. The, 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 rumpy, pumpy. The view here is just like, everyone in the position of authority in this world is a fool and a failure. Yeah. And no one's doing their job well, and everyone is basically just useless. Okay. 
before we play the box office game. And remember, also, we have a giant pin in the Prodigy. We have That's what back. I was about to say. And I have one. Should I unpin the Prodigy? Look, this is very brief. And I have one thought exercise that we can say okay. before box office game. And it's just, it'll be an easy answer. Okay. And I, I don't think we can, rev- the pin can come out, but it can only say this. And there can be no when the pin comes out, it's going to go like, clang. Yeah, but we, we're, not, we're, not going, we're not going to belabor this. As you remember, last year before we recorded Halloween, Griffin and I went to see Guns N' Roses. That's right. That's this, right. You guys have done road trips both a couple times. This year we yeah. went out to the Mahoning Drive-In in Central yeah. Pennsylvania to watch some Universal monster films. Did you go to Waffle House? We did not go we to went the to South. Wawa. No, but there's a Waffle House in Central Pennsylvania. Oh. We didn't and we should have. We didn't get that Central. I went when I was in Atlanta recently. It was delicious. It's the best. It's well, we went gross. to Wawa. We had a good Wawa We went trip. to Wawa. Griffin got the Kevin Hart combo. Do you know what the Kevin Hart combo? Can I, David? I have to talk Just about this. Just do it quickly for thirty seconds. Do it quickly. You know this fucking trend of like music stars who like have their own fucking fast food menu, sure, whatever combo meal. Yeah, where it's like this is the sweetie meal. Yeah. What I get is this, but with this sauce and this on the side or whatever. And the entire idea is like this is a personal reflection. What is the Kevin Hart their, combo? The Kevin Hart combo is some shitty fucking energy drink that he has some pre-existing sponsorship with sure, called like juice. C12 or some shit. <laughs> sure. It's not a heart-branded thing. It's some deal he already has. Heartbreaker. It's called C12, I believe, or something like okay. that. Okay. And any sandwich you want. <laughs> so the combo is, I don't know, what do you like? The combo is, drink my drink, you jerk. Are you that much of a fucking sociopathic so fame hound we didn't eat the sandwich because Alex no. told me that the food was going to be so fucking good at the drive-in that I I went back for seconds. So it was really good. Yeah, let's be fair. I told you it was going to be good, and, and you it was said great. it was, it was better than I said. Well, it's just come on. What was your sandwich? I didn't get didn't a get sandwich. One. That's we didn't. He didn't get one. I just want you to say Turkey Club. Turkey Club. So you got the Kevin Hart combo turkey style. I just wanted to say that. Okay. I hiked to Griffin. I was like, all the food at the drive-in is beige and fried. You're going to be in heaven. And yeah. then when we went through the first time, you said there's almost too much choice for a guy like me. Right. And I said, I I, okay. I have to be selective now so I can come back for seconds. And what yeah. is the thought? Exercise? Okay. I can't tell you why, okay. when this started or any context for it. Okay. But I will say that when Great. Griffin and I go on these trips. You're chatting. We're chatting. We chat a lot. You are referred to as hip hop sims. Now moving on to the other thing. Excuse me. Mo- moving on to the thought experiment. I'm not, I'm not objecting. We're I'm not allowed to invest it. This is the thought experiment. We, next, next August, whenever I come back, next August, I'll, we'll, we'll give one more tidbit on hip hop sims. Alex but texted me for today. For reasons I can't reveal. A photo of Cartman from season one of South Park <laughs> looking like MC Search in like the red jumpsuit. Because you said when you picture hip-hop Sims, you picture hip-hop Cartman. Yeah, and I said hip-hop We Sims. can't say why this started, in what context, or I'm what sorry. it means. Are you saying that because you don't know? Or because no, no, you don't we want know. to we know. Oh, no, we know. We know why. It, but we I don't, don't. I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. But we don't about want you to know. Yeah. <laughs> why can't I know? Can because it, it might put the pin back might, on the board. It might, by, by revealing. It's not going in. It's like a social, you can't let the jury read the news because it will ruin the outcome of the trial. <laughs> you can't let Hip Hop Sims know why he has. <laughs> why do you call me Hip Hop Sims? It can't be answered. All right. You, you have, have to put, put a Alex pin, on another episode. We have to put another pin I'm happy to book him on another. I don't need to threat. Great, then put a pin in it. Put a pin no, in No, I have for no, I have further questions. Is it insulting? No. No. Is it complimentary? No. No. It's merely factual. <laughs> it's a reflection of reality with no editorial. But it's not, you're not being mean about me. Look, no. I'm not saying I'm just asking. I'm not saying that this started last year at Guns N' Roses. I'm not saying that it started after your wedding. All possible. Anything is possible. I'm not saying this is because of 
comments you've made on episodes. I'm just saying to us, you are hip hop sense. I should say at the Guns N' Roses concert, this was introduced to me by Alex. Okay. I accepted or it. it was introduced after the wedding. Sure. One or the other. But now anytime we talk, at some point, we refer to hip-hop sims. Okay. At the Guns N' Roses concert, it was this is the last thing I'll say. It was said during their astonishing cover Incredible. of Live and Let Die. Incredible. That you had claimed this was the worst thing that ever happened to music. It was maybe the that. best thing ever. I never said that, but... Uh... I think Griffin sent you a video of them performing it, and you made some disparaging remarks. Yeah. And I, not that and good. Maybe that was when hip-hop sims started. Maybe I there was sent you that video of me opening the ultimate fucking box. Maybe there was something that. at the yeah. wedding that gave birth to hip-hop sims. The point is, he's out there. He's out there. He exists. He's real. And the memes will be created. Well, actually, okay. I want to speak to, listen, people out there, David has gone through enough of the British bit. Please be gentle about... I'm just saying, I'll take hip hop sims. sims. That's all I'm saying. I'll just be gentle. I'll take hip hop sims over the UK bit. The, I'll I'll certainly you'll you'll never, the you'll never go. What are you talking about? You'll never go over the top of the UK thing after Clockwork Orange. No. I just don't want it to be mean. It's not mean. Okay. If there's nothing mean about it. Much well, like the UK, it could be mean. If it was mm. mean, we wouldn't say it to your face. And know that sure, when this is revealed, know that when this is revealed, it's <laughs> not really comforting. But sure, to know that when this is revealed, you'll just laugh and go, "Okay, that's funny." But I have to wait? Yeah. I just want to let it sit out there. Here's another thing to sit out Put there. It in it. This, has been sitting, this has been sitting out there for so long. <laughs> you guys, I almost mentioned this on Halloween this last like year. It's like a fat meatball just sitting in the air. Do you guys remember at the barbecue that we had a few months before the Halloween? You all showed me on your phone something that a friend of mine who I turned on to this show made you. Yes. That still has never seen the light of Here's day. Here's the answer. Here's the answer. Alex. Coming soon. Yes. Yes. Wait, there, what there's, are you talking about? I know what he's talking about. Oh and my the God. answer is... We have plans connected to a live show where we okay. would debut that. You oh, just, no, that, we've been yeah, sitting no, no, on it. It's in the it is so it's incredible. In the no, 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 no. No, it's incredible. It has to wait. We're, okay, so it, it does have to wait. I just wanted to set this up. If I said this a year ago, people would still be waiting because yes. what, what no, you guys have well, is was a so pandemic. Is yep. so, I won't say who made it or what kind of work they do, but this is so good. It's, it's incredible. incredible. It's not that we've forgotten about it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There's emails being sent, things being arranged. All right, here's my thought exercise. Jesus, in, we're in not conclusion, even a fucking thought exercise. We even played the fucking box office game. David, I have to leave ten minutes ago. No, the first thought exercise. This is a simple yes or no. Do you feel like in the modern world of mining every corpse of IP, Minecraft. any piece of Kubrick IP of can ever be touched? Oh, like could do you there feel be like, like a, someone's like, I'm going to offer my take on a Clockwork Orange, or they're doing a six episode 2001 well, prequel series? Here's a few things. A few things to say on that. There is a sequel to 2001. Well, of course. Yeah. Well, there's there's three books. Well, there's three books, but there is a filmed yes, some yes. director, and we're going to talk about Peter it. Hi- some director, Peter Himes. Himes. Put some respect Himes. on Peter Himes. Put some respect. Some but like director. he rolled up his sleeves and he was like, 2001. I'll follow that. Right. Well, he had the book. He had the book. Arthur C. Clarke was like, I'll follow that three times. There's also. Doctor Sleep. But that, of course, of course you've got the, That's the shining, yes. uh, you know, the Stephen King thing. I'm talking about literally being like, we are doing, there, there's a, like literally an in world. Like if they did 3001 now, or, or I think it, it it's, it's 2061, yeah. I and think then it will happen. You think some of the Kubrick stuff I think can be someone touched. will take a swing at one. I, I also think But what would it be? Is it 2001 or probably is it probably 2001? It's probably 2001, but I think there was such a tight grip on this stuff for so long that like not just Doctor Sleep, but like Ready um, Player 1. Ready Player 1. I think putting the Drukes in a uh, space I mean, jam. just a ludicrous thing and th- right. th- that we, literally happened. Part of it 
by the way, was just that like Warner Brothers even was so respectful to the Kubrick estate mm -hmm. that even if they had the legal grounds to do something, they wouldn't because they didn't want to piss him off or like uh, earn the ire of, of course, film of fans. Course. The other thing was they always were like, don't fucking merchandise the shit. I just texted you guys a photo of a real product that exists that is a baby doll of Alex DeLarge. I mean, I... It's a, a toy line called the Living Dead Dolls. We've got some babies, so... Like, it looks like a child. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll it be buying like, this. Well, it kind of looks like Chucky Alex DeLarge. This is like real Hot Topic shit, though. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But like, right. that's a thing that was always kept at okay. bay in the last five years, the floodgates. I just open. wanted to add, though, to, to this uh, quandary of yours. Wanting seeds, the um, the novel, the uh, Anthony Burgess novel before A Clockwork mm. Orange is very similar mm. in that it's a dystopian future, mm. but instead of um, focusing on violence, it's focusing on overpopulation and uh, hunger and like uh, scarcity of food mm. and it it, but it has very similar extreme. Themes. Yeah, I don't know his other work at uh, all. The wanting scene. The want well, that's right after Clark Right after. Right. Oh, he, so you okay, feel like, either, I, right. I think it's right after. So, so in conclusion, there, that, I mean, this, uh, yeah, I'm interested in him now that I just read this. Check. I think you'll really like the book. It's good. Um, so yeah. I could see that being an expansion like the or Burgess world. It's kind sort of, of yeah. a soft Clockwork Orange spinoff. Yep. Yeah. I just it just feels improbable that there's an entire body of iconic work that no one has pillaged. For grass IP extension. He, his big masterpiece is Earthly Powers, which I have read. It's the only other one I've this read. This is Burgess. Really no, on Burgess. Burgess, yeah. Yeah. Burgess Corner. Uh, All right. So, you, cool. so you guys are calling your shot. There may someday be a 2001 I think so, HBO Max okay. streaming yeah, show. They rushed it like 2010, the follow-up novels, the Marvel comic, the Kirby shit. And then it's yet. like the they've been trying so hard to do the fucking Shining shit for so long right. leading up to Dr. Sleep. Wanting to do the Overlook prequel, all this oh, shit. Oh, right, like, right, Overlook. Right. Yeah. I do think there, there will start to be more and more. Yeah. Especially. Right. I just was wondering that. Because it just, yeah, it just feels weird yeah. that there feels weird and obvious that there isn't. Of course right. there isn't. Do we want to talk about the prodigy? The prodigy <laughs> pin. <laughs> Has anything better ever been said at roughly three hours of a record? <laughs> The Prodigy what? pin was pulled that out. Was hip -hop that was Hip Hop Sims. It came okay. out. To be clear, the Prodigy is not a hip hop. Well, please tell us more. Please tell. Hang on. Tell us more. Tell us. <laughs> they're an electronic <laughs> music act. Uh, okay. But is so, there like you, a rapper you were just in the group? You were just huh? Is yeah. there a rapper in the group? Well, Keith Flint. Yeah. Is there another vocalist in the group that may be sort of more in the trip hop hip hop world that only you could educate us about? Wait, what the fuck are you doing? I'm now? just actually wanting you to go on about the prodigy. Oh, I don't want to go because there were the two vote. What's the other vocal? Maxim, Maxim Reality. I think Maxim Reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, what I, album did you mention was the one with the crab on the cover? That's Fat that's of the Land. Line. That was kind of their big. That's, that's the, the one with Smack My Bitch Up. And Wait, what Fire the fuck Starter. album were you talking about? Their ben, first ben, ben, album ben. is called Experience. They broke in America in '98. They had been big in Britain for, for years, decades. Yeah. Oh, not a decade. Like you know, the nine, the whole '90s. Their first album, Ben. Ben, I'm going to send you a song. You know what? On my way home, I'm going to send you a song. All right. And you're going to listen to it. All right. You are going, I just want you, when you listen to it, it's called Out of Space. It's from Experience. I just want you to imagine yourself hopped up on so many goofballs in some English fucking marsh, you know, with like mud around you right here at Glastonbury or Reading or one of these, one, one of these festivals, <laughs> listening to this. So many goofballs. Okay. And listening to this music. How many goofballs did Teenage David take to when the day music from the Jilted Generation came out? 
Well, I was far too young to be taking goofballs when that guy was like 10. Ben, do you know what the cover is of their album before Fathom the Land? I'll show you the album. The Music album. from the Jilted Generation. But no. Why would I know that? Because, because maybe you like once the Once Fathom the Land I mean, I like the so Prodigy, but I can't Fathom retain all this information. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's that? kind of like a bad, um, who's the art director for alien stuff? Yeah, H.R. Geiger. Geiger. Yeah, it's like yeah, sure. a bad yeah. Geiger kind of thing. Which yeah. any EDM album band from the 90s probably should have that kind of an album cover, right? Yeah. Fat of the Land is a pretty cool Okay, cover. so we, David, David pulled out, without looking it up, MC Maxim Reality. Yeah. And with that, we can play the box office game. Yeah, all I'm going to say, David, all I'm going to say is we are very aware the Prodigy is not a hip-hop group. Okay. But it's the just, mere fact that you started to go deep on a prodigy tangent like that is the thing that made Alex and I look at each other and go, let's pin hip hop sims. Hip hop sims needs to at least peek out the door. Because we had texted this morning, we texted last night, we were just like, should we touch it or not? And then when you said the prodigy thing, we looked at each other and went, getting close enough. Has to happen. And I'll say that if anyone. Is there something I could say that would bring it to the fore? Like there's uh, some secret absolutely. combination of words. There, there may be, yeah. It's like an AI. You just have to read the words correctly. <laughs> and suddenly. <laughs> suddenly you guys are just like, okay, here's what's, here's what's going on. Okay, we'll tell you the truth. I will say that this is something that perhaps guys, a guest yeah, of the show. have to play the box. All right, have to. If right, someone enough. figures this out, they win a no prize is all I'll say. That's all I'll say. But Including be gentle. You. When did Clockwork Orange come out? Um, it came out in like Christmas 1971, but I want to do January, early January, which is when it's in the top 10. Take the going fan wide. wide. Okay, so this is January 72? January 1972. Cool. And uh, it's opening on number nine, so it's not in the okay. number, it's not in the Naughty top Naughty number nine. Number one is a James Bond film. Uh, in 1972. One, two, yes. Yeah. Oh, oh! It so came out in one. It's a 71 carryover. Is it Diamonds Are Forever? It's Diamonds Are Forever. Right, because I knew it was pre-more. Exactly. It's Connery's last run. Yeah. In Diamonds Are Forever, a very bad movie. Do you have any opinions on Diamonds Are Forever? I, you know, I watched all those Bond movies when I got the three box sets, Circa, World Is Not Enough. Mm -hmm. And I have not revisited all but a few. I mean, a few of them I've not seen since I got those three yeah, box sure. sets. I mean, yeah. I've enjoyed I watched every Morris. single one of them, and I hold them all as just fun childhood memories. Yeah. Fun. The power of DVD was in my hands. Yeah. I had 20 Bonds in a row. I mean, and I, yeah, at some point, I'd like to rewatch all of them. I saw someone on, I think, the Reddit after the Liver Let Die commentary came out said, like, they ran down all the problems with the movie, then said four out of 10 will definitely rewatch. Yeah. And, like, that's how I feel they're with just, all the more. They're just comforting. Just, like, they're, they're just, just so, even when they're yeah, a bad Bond movie, agree. it's like, look, James Bond's in it. He saw it. There's stuff, gadgets. Yeah. Diamonds Are Forever is just. You know, just that classic end of an actor's run where you can just feel him going through the motions. Yeah, I can't like I can't differentiate beyond like the four core Conneries. What else is in there? Well, it's the sixth Connery. Number two at the box office. Go on. How would I know that? Uh is a big weighty actory drama from a big director that's quite challenging. It was a Christmas awards. Seventy one awards, but it was on. not a big awards player. It only gets one Oscar nomination, probably a little too dark. In a way, was it was an acting nomination? Yes, best supporting actress. The movie's too dark. It does get a supporting actress nomination. It's also like maybe too frank. Although then again, A Clockwork Orange is is it? Best let me be frank. It's not let me because be that's frank. very frank. It yeah. is very frank. The frankest. And that also got no acting nominations. <laughs> Weirdly, got a Webby. <laughs> I don't think so. Nineteen seventy-one. It's a huge actor. Uh, who we've mentioned. On Two huge actors or one? No, one. And then a musician is the other leading male part. Huh. And then two ladies. An actor who was mentioned today. Mm -hmm. And then a musician. 
and then two ladies. Mm -hmm. And one of the ladies gets nominated. Oh, it's Colonel Knowledge? Colonel Knowledge. As we were mentioning, Jen. Nicholson, Garfunkel. And Candy gets the nomination, right? No, and Margaret. Oh, why did I get that flip? And Margaret has two Oscar nominations. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah, it is. You're right. Uh, She does have two. Candy ever get nominated? Candy ever get nominated? Candice LeBron James. She's been nominated twice, right? Starting over... No, just once. Just once for starting Rude. over. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Number three is um, the best picture winner of 1971. Already uh, mentioned. Uh, uh, well, it's not The Godfather. No, that's 1972. Right. Uh, the movie that French Connection. French. The French Connection. Yeah. A great movie. Yeah. Do you like The French Connection? Yeah. Yeah, it rules. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, it's uh, fucking cool. Popeye Doyle has a hat. Four is a, is a, <laughs> no, a, a lot of hats in the best picture nominees this year. Had Clockwork. I mean, Fiddler on the Roof's probably got some hats. Uh, definitely has some hats. hats. Whoever hosted the Oscars should have come out wearing all the hats. Would have been like a whoopee Elizabeth bit. That would know? be really funny if he took off. Oh, that'd be good. Like yeah. took off the Fiddler hat and yeah. the Clockwork hats on yeah. the You can just cetera. picture Billy and the Clockwork Drew get up uh, coming out. If only Billy had The been. host, of course, yeah. was Helen Hayes, Alan King, Sammy Davis Jr., and Jack Lemmon. The funniest. The Drew. They should have all come out. In, <laughs> right. They should have all come out in Drew's with one hat each. All right. Um... Bring out Number some four. star from the 30s and beat them with a cane. Number four is also <laughs> a cop movie. Number four is also a huge hit. It's a huge hit. Is it a Dirty Harry? It is. Is it Dirty, dirty Harry. Harry? It's yes. Dirty Harry. Yeah. And number I mean, five. this is really that rush of like violence exactly. breaking it's like open. The streets on are not safe. Yeah. Yeah. We need a big man with a gun. It's a wild December into January. It is. Couple of movies here. Well, especially saying, this, like Bonnie Clyde, Dirty Harry, Clockwork Orange. And I feel like there's one other, like the four movies that are cited of like that blue Straw, violence Straw open in America. Straw in there Dogs, which is Straw Dogs. That's the four. There you go. Thinking. That's number eight okay. this wow. week. Uh, number five is a big musical that was nominated for Best Picture. We just mentioned Oliver? it. No, we just mentioned it a million times. <laughs> Fiddler, on Fiddler on the Roof. The highest grossing film of its year. Um, and then you've got Dollars, the Excuse Warren Beatty, me. Goldie Hawn uh, comedy caper movie. Wait, wait, wait. That We just watched that. That was on Criterion last year. It's bad. Really? Yeah. It's a good title. It's Richard Brooks. Uh, Richard Brooks, yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, we are just like, huh, you know, there's, you know, there's like 13 Warren Beatty movies total. Yeah. Should watch this one, one of them is Richard dollars. Brooks is like not someone I would see as a cap- comedy caper no, guy. Is he totally did like to- in cold it's, blood? Yeah, yeah it was like there's so Goodbar. few Warren movies. We haven't seen this one. Goldie, of course, the best. And yeah. it's just like, man, this movie is lifeless. It has a good heist scene in like a safe. Like the actual mm, thievery sure. of it is fun, just in like a construction of heist moviness. But sure. man, is it man is it dull? Well, you've also got Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, kind fun. of a minor classic. Yeah. Uh, Tomlinson. Tomlinson and Lansbury yeah. riding a bed. Yeah. Um, you've got Straw Dogs, previously mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have House of Wax in re-release. Oh, wow. The Vincent Price film. Very yeah. cool. Cracking the top 10. Yeah. In January. In January. Is that holding over from October? Or did they just re-release that at Christmas? It's, it's, it's. I don't know. They probably re-released Would it they Christmas. all be like 3D re-releases? I would assume. Yeah. I don't know. Part of the novelty, right? And then A Clockwork Orange. That's your 10. Ben, that was like the first like major studio 3D movie. And there's like a two minute sequence where someone just paddle balls at the camera. <laughs> and it's like as jarring as you would. Um, Especially like, if you don't watch it in 3D. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah. No, I watched it in like 2D in high school on TV. There's a character who's like a carnival barker and he's like, here you, here you, come here. Let me show you the new tricks. It's not like a character you've met before in the film. He just fucking paddle balls the camera for like two minutes. And they're like, anyway, back to the house of wax. 
yeah, that that doesn't sound like uh, it's they good. figured it out. No, yet. it's good. It's really good. Alex, final thoughts? Uh, great movie. Great director. Yeah. A real Ben movie. Oh, God. It's changed for me from watching it. Changes every time. All those years ago to It's going to be a, a really older interesting older. movie, I think, to watch as I get older and older. Yep. Being yep. younger than the protagonist when I saw it, but is even younger than he is in the book. When I and first saw parent. That is true. Yeah, I can't wait to show 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 the child Clockwork Orange for the first time. That'll be really huge. You know, at the age of thirteen, like I was. Yeah, I, it, I David, mean, to be fair, she was around while I was watching it the other day. Hey, but mostly asleep. David, uh, I I do feel like we owe you an apology. We Thank did. You. We did go very hard on the the England bit this week, but and only it's because just, it's just so funny. It's funny for this movie, and it's not going to be relevant again. Anyway, tune in next week for Barry Lyndon. <laughs> Well, I do think knowing the guest and the format of that episode, it will probably be lighter on bits. That's a but challenge you never I'll know. take. <laughs> but you never know. That's a challenge I'll take. Well, you know, you may not have as willing a collaborator, I guess is what I mean. It's a challenge I'll take. Alex, thank you for coming here. Thank you for uh, removing the pin on Hip Hop Sims. A promise stay, stay tuned for that one. Later. Stay tuned for that one. <laughs> I think David's going to be so flummoxed when he hears the explanation, too. And thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping to produce the show. Thank you to Alex Barron, AJ McKeon for our editing, JJ Birch for our research. Thank you to Lee Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to some real nerdy shit, including our Reddit aforementioned, and also Blank Check Special Features, our Patreon, where we do commentaries on... Right now, the Roger Moore movies, as we also just talked about. Tune next week for Benny Linden. I'm calling now is going to be the nickname. How dare you. And as always, Hip Hop Sims. <laughs>